Welcome to Kurt Vonnegut's The Podcast Decade to the Life and Works and Ongoing Things of Kurt Vonnegut, because he's the greatest author of all time. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Michael Swaim. Woo! Whoa, whoa, stop driving that vehicle. I don't know it's time I... to do a podcast. That's what that sounded like to you? Yeah, like a, like an ambulance going by. Was it the Doppler? <laughs> yeah. Is it because I John Lennoned it and swung myself upside down around the microphone while I screamed? <laughs> It was really impressive. Yeah. Yeah. Michael did, since you're not here, he did like a head whip past the microphone. Yeah. And also, right before I started talking, I did probably a really weird stretch kind of move, mm-hmm. which might have thrown him. Trying to get the energy so up. We're getting uh, we're getting into it. We're talking about Welcome to the Monkey House ooh, ooh, on this ooh, episode. Ooh. Yeah, those are monkeys. Masturbate, masturbate, throw shit <laughs> at a child, traumatizing him forever so that he never forgets it. Yeah. And at a podcast many years later, he has to bring it up. <laughs> yeah yeah welcome Difficult to the monkey to house <laughs> <laughs> i was thrilled to hit this one because it's his first short story compendium yeah. and uh i'm obsessed with short story writing i often feel like i should have been born <laughs> in the 20s so i could have been writing in the 50s and 60s and i would have been like a short story author when that was a profession you could have <laughs> there's a, a set of vonnegut's letters edited by dan wakefield and he mentions in it and Ooh, a lot of people have mentioned already with the information that, i love it well, here we go he says that short story writing like you say especially in the 50s and early 60s like that was a very high profile very lucrative place to do this kind of work and he points out that William Faulkner was writing for Collier's Magazine. F. Scott Fitzgerald was writing for the Saturday Evening Post. John Steinbeck was writing for Woman's Home Companion sometimes. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Ernest Hemingway would be an Esquire. Like The biggest writers in the world would be writing short stories for magazines. Right. And, and now so, you just have a few bastions. Like, I think The New Yorker is probably the preeminent, like, home yeah. for serious short fiction. But And I think pretty much them. I don't like, even know if they other, pay. I mean, this was a time when you could... Every day, as Brad, I saw Ray Bradbury at Comic Con, and he said he worked five days a week, eight hours a day, writing short stories and turning them into a publisher, like working at a fiction factory yeah. where you just have to pump out content, which is kind of what we do here. But short stories are so neat to me. I also think it's the true cousin of the movie. Movies are always compared to books. And I think that's funny because the experience of reading a book takes X number of hours, like if you're me, 25 hours. And watch your movie takes two hours and they invariably have to cut a bunch out and cram it down. The true cousin of the film, I think, is short stories. A nice long short story has about the number of story beats and the amount of mental time lapses that a film is. I love movies and I love short stories. I just love the idea of like a perfect little story you imbibe in about two hours and walk away with a single concept. That's interesting because I keep hearing TV being described as like novels because it's episodic and also because the, the quality is so high right now. I agree because you go chapter by chapter. I think books are more like TV series for sure. Yeah. And I hadn't made that mental leap of, yeah, that probably makes movies more like short stories because mm-hmm. it's one killer premise. You hit mm-hmm. it in an interesting way. Maybe there's a twist. Ooh, Shyamalan. Yeah. And then you're right. You did it. Exactly. Blade yeah. Runner didn't have to cut anything out. And they <laughs> yeah. could linger for so long that I find it boring. <laughs> That's how many, uh, how much room they had to stretch right. their legs. Yeah, and release a new cut where it's even longer. Exactly. And if you're yeah. a true fan, <laughs> yeah. What did Vonnegut think about Blade Runner, Alex? I feel I like don't I know. okay. <laughs> I'm disappointed. I feel like I can ask you anything about like who's Vonnegut's first cousin's sisters. 
boy. What was his name? What's me. he majoring it's in? It's me. <gasps> I am the boy. That makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> this whole podcast makes sense now. It's all been a journey to my fan, true yeah. family. And when you said uh, at the top, this is his first short story collection in a lot of ways, but also wasn't technically the first one. Eleven of the stories in this, plus an extra story, appeared as a book called Canary in a Cat House in 1961. And that was technically the first release Mm. of a set of Vonnegut short stories. This is a much more expansive, came out in 1968, and is pretty much the one we have with us today, because why would you get the shorter, earlier version of it with the same stories, but less? This is the unrated extended cut of Canary in a Cat House. Yeah, yeah. And it also, since it's drawing from that past work that we're ranging from, I think the first story in this is from 1950, it was published? Yes, 1950, which was Report on the Barnhouse Effect and was Kurt's first purchased published short story, and then goes all the way to the title story in 1968. So we're looking at close to 20 years of Kurt's ideas. So it's not a concept album. It's a just a collection of stories he wrote throughout his life. Yeah. There's no overarching narrative, which is fine. I'm just saying it's not Illustrated Man. <laughs> right. And it's... FYI. And we'll get into it as we talk about the stories and go through them story by story. But I feel like it's really, really poorly ordered. I don't know. I f- it feels like there's zero logic to what comes when in this collection. It's not a problem problem. It's just that it feels like nobody put any thought into sure. we're going to lead with this story yeah. and then that story and i agree that. that you don't gain anything from the order of the stories but i didn't find it distracting like i didn't yeah. think they were in a terrible order other than it's like a, a band's sophomore album where they wanted to prove their first album wasn't a flash in the pan and so instead of the first track being the hit single the second track's the hit single and the first track yeah. is just some experimental bullshit i hate the first story <laughs> oh same and i was like is this what it's gonna be like But it's not. So, yeah, I'll agree with you there. I thought the first story was really poor choice to be the first story. I think there's two hit singles, and one of them is the one you mentioned, and then the other one's just way in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. For no, for kind of no reason, and is also I'm interested to know what you thought chronology. were the hits. Well, let's get into. Sure. This is going to be. Let's call this segment super story plot time. Up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a super plane. Super short story plot time. It's super short story plot time. Yeah, and we, as you know, if you've listened to the show before, we declare them segments when they're segments. They just yeah. kind of happen. I think with this one, we will often kind of go by stories and those are sort of their own little segments just this is what happens in the story and we'll probably hit things we often segment in shows blurts and bonawats and so on as we go but we'll see it's a free-for-all man speaking of free-for-all i'm gonna disjoint time christopher nolan style immediately what we should have mentioned why we're not doing from the group Am I Batman? Now? Which is oh, we should, yeah, we should have. We're not doing from the group. We're not doing it this week because <laughs> we're gonna record a mini episode. Producer Brett, do you know about this yet? I do. Okay, we thought the Facebook group was going so well, and not just yeah. Facebook. And but, you guys are wonderful yeah. to talk to on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. We have really so good. many wonderful Vana friends asking questions that we'd like to revisit and making insights that we missed. And uh, there's just a lot of great conversation going on. So rather than parse that out each episode, we're going to do some mini episodes yeah. where we just rapid fire through basically like insights that were brought in from the group that we didn't ourselves have. Yeah. And yeah, we'll yeah. sound smart by saying them, like Alex Trebek. 
<laughs> and we'll put them all there. And also, if you're someone who's not totally following the group, then you'll be able to just dive into this episode without leading with, you know, what, what people are talking about. Yeah. You can just be like, oh, raw and cut stories. Yeah. Yeah. We'll do it every five books oh, or baby. so. And that way we have sort of like a month in review yeah, before yeah. our next batch. But anyway. So that'll happen at another time. Yeah, later. Right now it's time later. for super short story plot time. Because this has so many tales all in one. Many. Oh, yeah. And also, I gotta go fast. (laughs) Like many of Kurt's books, I feel like a lot of the best stuff happens prior to the stories or the chapters and just the little dedications. And he also does a preface. This book is dedicated to Knox Berger. The dedication is for Knox Berger, 10 days older than I am. He's been a very good father to me. And in reading his letters and in tracking Kurt's career... It really sounded like you were saying that about yourself. I was confused. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I am his father, Very too. Very naturalistic speaking style. <laughs> I am his whole family. Uh, less naturalistic now. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> uh, so Knox Berger is a fellow Cornell alumnus and re-met Kurt in the process of rejecting one of his short story submissions to Collier's. Knox was working there as editor. And if you read Kurt's letters and if you read into the history of his career, Knox is so essential. Like Before we started doing this show, I had no idea how much Knox made Kurt's career happen. By Obviously, mm. Kurt's writing is the primary driver of making it happen, but <laughs> Knox was the person behind the scenes who was supporting him and helping him have his short stories reach people, and then selling short stories let him write novels, and the rest is history. And so, it sounds like a delicious burger on top of that. <laughs> right, and like we talked about before, one of the many crazily named people in Kurt's real life that probably helped contribute to his oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> characters having crazy names, too. And this is also, as far as I remember, the first book of Kurt's that he dedicated to Knox, and in their letters back and forth. It just says, mmm, Knox Burger. Mm. <laughs> That's the whole dedication. Bizarre. Right. And it's in a thought bubble above Homer's head. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, a crude Vonnegut line drawing of Homer Simpson that predates the Simpsons by 25 years. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, writing to each other in, in 1968, Knox had written a thank you to Kurt for the dedication, and Kurt wrote back to him, I'm glad that my dedication tickled you. I thought you would be jaded by now. How many books have been dedicated to you so far? 20, I'll bet. That's because Knox was supportive of many people, but mm-hmm. it was definitely high time that Kurt dedicate one to Knox because yeah. he's so helpful to him. And it's appropriate that it's a short story one because he really facilitated a lot of the early ones, including See, his first published one. You could say a lot of those writers went through the school of hard knocks. <laughs> Burgers. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Mo- mothers, name your children Knox because yeah. it is a fun name. It yeah. needs to be a first name in the world again. Other than that, Mo- Allison Short Mo- Story Knox. Who are mothers. If you've been if oh, you've yeah, been following right. along with our related reading, I recommended a story called Knox about a dude that like turns a cat inside out and nails it to his neighbor's <laughs> front door. Yeah. So and I a horrible bad, racist. Yeah, I have a bad association with Knox. <laughs> But in Vonnegut World, what a great name. What a great What a great dude. So from there, uh, we get into the... Epitaph? What do you call the opening quote? Yeah, I don't know. There's dedication, there's table contents. Then we have an opening quote, which is, Beware of all enterprises that require new clothes, which is Henry David Thoreau, I believe from Walden. So from there, Kurt does his preface, and he talks in a very first-person fashion about his history as a short story writer. It's a lot of things that 
we have learned in studying his history as a writer, but if you didn't know them, they're fascinating. And I think he writes them entertainingly and in a fun way. Yeah, it's a moving little thing about his family and he appreciates his siblings. It's nice. It's yeah. good before the face to get the preface out of the way. And he also <laughs> says that his father invented a beer called Lieberlager, which I think means freedom lager or lover lager. I don't well, know was, German. Yeah, I think it was his mom's side of the family was a big brewer in Indianapolis. Oh, okay. Anyway, the secret ingredient was coffee is what I'm driving at. So yeah, they yeah. predicted the Drew Carey show as well, the buzz beer thing. <laughs> oh, yeah, so We got right. Simpsons, Drew Carey. We'll yeah. see what else, yeah. And just delicious real-life beers. I don't know if you knew this, yeah. All modern-era sitcoms are derived from <laughs> Welcome to the Monkey House. <laughs> Just each story is like a pilot for Bob's Burgers. Right, yeah. yeah. The right. back page, just the ISDN, like, all, you know, all the small type for, you know, all the copyright information. That's Big Bang Theory. They turned oh, that into Big Bang Theory. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's amazing. Yeah, they're wow. scraping the back of the book at that point. <laughs> all right, story one, Where I Live. Yeah, so we get into Where I Live, and mm. it's kind of a shaggy dog story. That's kind of first person about just hanging out in Barnstable, Massachusetts, where Kurt lives in real life. Oh, my God. Let's skip this. (laughs) It's what I would call a tone poem. Okay. I went to Euro Disneyland once, ill-advised, when I was in Paris. Wasted the day at Euro Disneyland. And there was a ride that wasn't in the Disneyland here, so I wanted to try it. And it was like Captain Nemo or 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And the line... so French. You know how they make the lines... They make the lines super cool. Well, it's 20,000 yeah, meters below the... yeah. Right. <laughs> they make the lines really cool, like the Indiana Jones line, and there's animatronics in the line. The line was amazing. Like, you're walking <laughs> through and seeing all these animatronics and underwater stuff. Yeah. But it was still a line where you're moving an inch at a time. And I was like, this ride's going to be incredible. Look how good the line is. You get to the end and get out. The line was the ride. <laughs> that was it. That's what this short story That's, felt like. You just finished and you're like, oh, exactly. now I've exited. Because the short yeah. story is many paragraphs describing a setting. And you, I don't know about you, but I kept going like, okay, someone's going to now enter the setting and begin acting and causing <laughs> things to happen. But no, it's just like a literally not a poem, but I mean a prose description of where he lives. The end. <laughs> one story down moving on what do you think we get out of that why is this here did I, you like it at all <laughs> well I, no but okay i was able to move past it because the next story is so great like i, I was able to flush it out of my head it's not like agonizing to read through but you're right there's not a lot going on it's just sort of a vibey thing yeah and it also This story is one of my prime examples for, I don't think anybody thought about the order of the stories in this, Mm -hmm. because it was written in late 1964. It was in a magazine called Venture Traveler's World, which... So it probably literally was supposed to be, in context, an article describing his neighborhood, and they counted it as a story. (laughs) Yeah, and there are only... Most of the stories in this book come from the... About half the stories come from the first half of the 1950s, when Kurt... Mm-hmm. has only written player piano or has not written any novels and is really pushing to make a living and build his reputation by writing amazing short stories. And then there are only a couple of stories, Where I Live, and then New Dictionary, which is all first person, and then the title story, that are from the late 60s. So I feel like with this one, it was something that he sold to a magazine because he was Kurt Vonnegut, the author of Cat's Cradle. And so he wasn't world famous, but it was 
fundamentally interesting to someone reading this magazine just oh i can find out where the guy who wrote cat's cradle lives all right right cool (laughs) like let's check that out just what it's like and not even your own impression someone else's anyway (laughs) yeah so it it probably could have been cut it's not quite first person it's not quite true events but it's just about how this town kind of moves slowly in the one good line i like from it is yeah, they're willing to change about as quickly as the rules of chess. That was the one thing I remember, that's too. The only, yeah, yeah. That's the only good line. It's a good line. So now, though, turn your stereo up to 11, because <laughs> the hit of all hits is hitting. Yeah, you now hit. it's time for the <laughs> next story, which is Harrison Bergeron. Yeah. You, <laughs> you've read it. have heard of this story. Also, yeah, I asked Brett to do a little quick sound mm-hmm. change so you know when we move to a next story. So there it is. So yeah, we've yeah. whipped over to the world of Harrison Bergeron, a sci-fi yeah. dystopia where everyone is equal. As the opening lines say, they were equal every which way. Like yeah. as equal as can possibly be, taken <laughs> to the nth degree. Yeah. Which right out of the gate is interesting because I think most people reading it read the moral of the story to be that that's bad. Right. The way the story presents it. But that's the opposite of Sirens of Titan, where they literally use the same system, handicapping, and it's depicted as possibly good. So I go back to not knowing if Kurt Vonnegut, and and I'll never know, I guess, but if I could ask him five things in there would be, do you think everyone should be equal or not? I couldn't, I can't tell. I would say he doesn't think that, but... I don't know. I feel like Sirens of Titan, we're meeting that system at its very beginning. Uh And maybe it's sort of workable for making people happier. Like maybe it's a transitional step in the process of a space wanderer showing up. And then once you have that legend, you can move on from this crazy, horrible system to live in. Because it's so clearly terrible in Harrison Bergeron that I have a hard time yeah thinking that he also likes it at the same time in sirens and if this is your first episode and you're one of the few few people who didn't read this in high school (laughs) (laughs) the system we're describing is in the future everyone is gauged i guess every attribute of them is gauged and you have to wear handicaps to bring you down to the lowest common level so everyone is only allowed to be as smart as the least smart person the least smart person has no handicap, right. and then smart people have to have something like, say, an implant in your ear, I think it is, or something. Yeah. No, it's all very bulky contraptions. So I think it's like a helmet or a headphone hooked to his head, but it yeah, it's blasts like, noises in his ear that distracts one of the main characters whenever he tries to think too hard. Yeah, it's like there's head torture for your senses and for your intellect, and then there's a lot of weights for your strength and agility and... And then there's a lot of masking yeah. for your beauty. It's all yes. it's all just very over the top, bulky ways to no hide concern things. given to ergonomics. No. I mean, the guy because he's strong wears a sack of birdshot that weighs fifty pounds or something around his neck. Yeah, the father George, mother Hazel, and then Harrison Bridge around. You're just asking for lower back problems later in life, bruh. That's what I think. Yeah, right. Like you can't distribute <laughs> that weight. More evenly, you carry the weight, like even if you grant the handicapping. Yeah, right. <laughs> it doesn't have to be a 50 pound chain around your neck. That's the worst <laughs> place it could be. Right. Those dudes who like go jogging with weights on them, they don't <laughs> yeah. just have one sack of weights on them. Yeah. <laughs> we know where you're going with it. Neck. So we got Harrison Bergeron and his parents. Yeah. Who don't give a shit about him in the parental way because in the society every everyone's been alienated and everyone's like equal and it drab and communisty, but even more so. 
Yeah, and they also and in bringing down everyone's intellect, George the father is is smarter than his wife Hazel, so he's constantly getting ear splitting noises to make him dumber. And she is not that smart, so she doesn't have that, but is always curious, like, oh, what was that? What was that new noise you got? Yeah. Uh, but the two of them are either too unintelligent or too broken down to pay attention to what their son's up to and what he's doing. Hazel had a perfectly average intelligence, which meant she couldn't think about anything except in short bursts. Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, basically the whole story, because it's short, (laughs) is they're watching ballet on the TV, and it gets interrupted by their son committing treason, and that's the end of the story, in a nutshell. Yeah. But their son, Harrison Bergeron, the big taboo that he breaks, obviously because it's the only thing you know about the universe, is he removes all his handicaps. And not only that, but he he interrupts a ballet where everyone's dancing really clumsily because they all have intense handicaps on, yeah. and they all have masks on to hide their beauty because you're not allowed to be those things. Yeah. Which, plot hole alert <laughs> from me, it explicitly says, maybe it's not a plot hole, but... Oh, and it was easy to tell which dancer was the most beautiful and the most graceful because she had the most handicaps. Does that not completely remove the entire purpose of the handicapping system? Yeah. If it's easy to tell by the visibility of the handicaps who is superior and inferior in society, what's the point of having the handicapping system? Yeah. Unless they're invisible. And that I think it's on purpose and brilliant. Like it's great. Like even okay. even it's when telling they're showing, you how correct, how stupid this is. Is that the point? Yeah, there's no <laughs> there because there's no real way to totally hide it. Like Hazel right. knows that George is smarter in spite of the handicaps. When they show Harrison Bergeron's mugshot on TV because he's on the loose and he's seen as sort of a, a terrorist type yeah. because he's trying to break the system, uh, his mugshot shows that he's seven feet tall. Like they're not. Right. There's no yeah. way to hide that because mugshots show your height. And yeah, right. The the ballerina, you can tell which one's the prettiest because of the way the handicap. Because of the handicap. I think it's yeah. all on purpose and, all and right. very clever. Yeah. So the idea, I guess, if you're a proponent, is that you're being kind to others by not rubbing your superiority in their face. And that's obviously what Harrison's like. Screw that. Throws off all his shackles, grabs the prettiest dancer, makes her throw off all of her handicaps, which literally makes them fly into the air. <laughs> yeah, they're like they're soaring into the air and kissing forever, and it's yeah. beautiful. And there's a lot of love bleeding through this terrible, horrible system, both on TV with them, and then also I really like the little moments of. There's one moment where Hazel is telling George when they're watching TV, like, just take off the weight. I know it's really painful. And he says, no, nah, no, nah, I got to wear it legally. And and she says that she loves him and, quote, I don't care if you're not equal to me for a while. It's just yeah. a really, like, beautiful moment of, like, you know, to that's rest, a way yeah, to yeah. still express love in spite of everything in this being terrible. To make it ugly again and not to be insensitive, I also had to wonder, did they execute all mentally handicapped people on Earth? Oh, probably. Okay, because <laughs> otherwise that should be the, as smart as people are, right? Is the person yeah. with the most severe mental handicap who exists. <laughs> right, or or you'd have to construct some kind of mental booster for them, and it doesn't seem like they have the technology or skill to do that. Or inclination to improve inclination. people's capabilities. Right. <laughs> They're all about. So Di- the last piece of this puzzle is Diana Moon Glampers, yeah. who you'll know from God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater, but you don't because she's totally unrelated. Totally different character. Yeah. <laughs> she's a handicapper general, which is just the person in charge of dealing out handicaps right now for the government. 
She runs in to where they are flying through the sky gracefully dancing, Harrison and the ballerina, and literally just shoots them with a shotgun <laughs> out of the sky. Right. As if the attorney general, as if Janet Reno was, or was like... <laughs> Al-Qaeda what? I'll be right there. <laughs> I gotta just deal with this. <laughs> right. anyway, throw me that shotgun. Yeah. And they're dead within a line. And the, like the way it's written, yeah. it's just shot, Boom, dead, they're dead. Open. You know, the TV cuts to something else. Yeah. The parents think for a second, so I think something crazy sad just happened. Yeah. <laughs> but then their thoughts are interrupted by their handicaps and they go on watching TV pretty happily. I think also the shooting happens while George gets up to get a beer, something like that. And oh, so he yeah. comes back and Hazel's crying and he's like, why are you crying? And she's, oh, like, and she's like, I don't know. I, I just know I'm crying. It, yeah. it's, they, they don't even know what happened. Do you know the name? I want to say it's the adventures of Harrison Bergeron, but now I'm like tripping myself up because I'm like, how could it be exactly the same? And I didn't catch it all these years, but it was one of my favorite movies. Do you know the Terry Gilliam movie, Adventures of... Is it Baron Munchausen? Or Baron something? Munchausen. Yeah. Totally unrelated. Thank you. But I it's was chewy like that name. It's I like, know. Yeah. And yeah, Munchausen syndrome is what I was thinking. <laughs> Where you pretend your kid's <laughs> sick to get attention. But in the adventures of Baron Munchausen, similarly, there's a pretty beautiful scene of the hero and a beautiful dancer flying into the air because they're so good at dancing and then someone trying oh. to destroy it. I've never seen that movie. I just know. Good movie, random recommendation. Yeah. And that's saying something, but probably my favorite Terry Gilliam movie, Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Oh, wow. Eric Idle, really good in it. It's good. (laughs) Next story. (laughs) Yeah. Well, one thing. Sure. It will come up on this a lot with names of characters in these short stories being things that are in his novels and and also often not being related in any way. Mm -hmm. It's just repeated. There's a letter that Kurt wrote to Mark Leeds. M-A-R-C Leeds, who wrote the Vonnegut Encyclopedia, which is a very handy reference for this show. And also, if you like Kurt a lot, get it. It has a lot of info in it. It's great. But he wrote to him in 1989 and, among other things, said to him, I regularly lift the names of characters from short stories, not to show off the breadth of my reading, but to make sure they are okay for persons of such and such a nationality. And he also says, I also use the New York City phone directory, especially for Hispanics. The caress in Cat's Cradle I got from a Greek's mailbox on Cape Cod. So that's where Carras came from. Whoa. Oh, uh, it's someone's last name, Carras? Yeah, apparently it's that's a Greek funny. last name. Yeah. But also, Kurt is... It means enemies in Greek. No, <laughs> <laughs> Completely undermines the book. <laughs> from that letter, and also just from how they're clearly used, when Kurt is taking a name from a short story and putting it in his novel, or the other way around, it's often very random. And I feel like it yeah. also might be just expeditious for the writing process. Like, I need a name. Uh, glampers. All right, I'll just use it again. <laughs> right, it's fine. Yeah. And it's not wrong. Who cares? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So in What's God in Bless You, Mr. Rosewater, she's a very pitiable woman. And then in Harrison Bergeron, she's a dictator, yeah. essentially. And it's just the way he works. Big upgrade. Yeah. That's also, we've talked about before, novels that a few novels you've probably read if you know Kurt at all. Like Harrison Bergeron's one of the short stories. Yes. You've probably read if you know exactly. Kurt. Exactly. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. So why put it not first, first or not know. last? I don't, know. I don't understand. But <laughs> on to the next story. So give me that sweet, sweet whip. Yeah. yeah. Now my brain's completely refreshed. My palate is cleansed. <laughs> the next story is called Who Am I This Time? Mm-hmm. And it's a tale involving a lot of playwriting and a lot of community theater. And as far as when it comes up in Kurt's canon, this is also one of his few 60s stories that are in this book. It was in the Saturday Evening Post in December of 1961. 
So the book's pretty front loaded with relatively late period sure. short, short stories for some reason. It also, I don't know why Harrison Bergeron was also in 1961, and also it came mm-hmm. after Sirens of Titan. So okay. I feel like he is maybe revising yeah. his Titan opinion of. It makes so much sense to me that this is was in the Saturday Evening Post, which, if you don't know, is famous among other things for having the covers that Norman Rockwell painted. Yes, and it's like just the cheeriest, happiest, cheesiest, like. Oh, gosh, ain't America grand? Not that, I mean, Norman Rockwell's amazing, yeah. but it's a very nostalgic, generous view of Americana. And right. that makes so much sense. Also, the play we saw a few episodes back made more sense to me because as a sci-fi buff, I seek out the sci-fi stories. But Vonnegut tends to have two types of stories and they sort of switch off. Cool sci-fi things with like a clear premise and twist and homey, cute little like parables about like Lake Wobegon, or just like what nice people are like in Indiana, falling in love and yeah. doing little th- human things. <laughs> so this is very much like a Norman Rockwell painting of a story. Because if you haven't heard that previous episode, we saw a play called Vonnegut USA, which ran in Atwater Village in LA, and it was based on just some Vonnegut short stories that are Clearly about small town ones. America and yes. kind people being in love and meeting each other. Yeah, they completely ignored all the sci-fi stuff. And I'm actually going to call out two stories that are written as if they should be plays. And I was like, I don't mean to be yeah. crapping on this production weeks after it ended. <laughs> but if you're listening, guy who put that production together, um, you should have adapted the Ufio question, man. But we'll yeah. get there. We'll get there. Oh, uh, yeah, that'd be amazing. Actually. Um, yeah. Who Am I This Time is about some small town people. What do you call What was the Midwestern phrase that you loved? Oh, freshwater people. Some freshwater people. Yeah. <laughs> Mounting a production of... What is it? Streetcar named Desire? Yeah, Streetcar named yeah. Desire. It's, a, it's basically season five, episode four of The Simpsons. <laughs> Marge is going to be in Streetcar. <laughs> it's all sitcoms. Exactly. And it's also pretty clearly driven by Kurt's experiences in community theater in Massachusetts. He was the president of a local community theater there. And the story is all about one of these kind of community theaters where the person who always directs the plays is in their mid seventies now. Yeah. So a real Christopher guest character of a character. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The same folks in town are always the lead and always the director and always running the show. And it's very quaint. And it also feels somewhat driven by the, publication Kurt's selling to it feels a little bit like he wrote it toward this is something a Saturday evening post will want right and this will help me sell it and also that kind of dichotomy between stories I think it might be based on the magazines that existed like whether it's small town or sci-fi or something else like Harrison Bergeron was written for the magazine of fantasy and science fiction it was so he <laughs> might have just science found fiction for people who would take he it. just found two markets that paid him so he wrote to both markets I think and so. And then someone's like, I know how he could make money again. Slap them together in no particular order in this book. <laughs> but that doesn't detract from how great the great stories are. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. We're and just I'm, really I'm, bagging on whoever ordered the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah. And I'm not trying to say he's being a hack or pandering or anything. It's just no, that no, no, he's but you write working toward, within right. some structures that were there. Like I said, honestly, my true dream of dreams would be to somehow make a living writing stories like isaac asimov writes yeah but i love writing jokes too and i do that because that is a feasible profession so he did what you know you do what you do yeah so who am i this time the title is in reference to the lead of leads in this town who's basically billy bob thornton from the man who wasn't there if he wasn't a murderer 
the janitor who has an, who, a complete lack of personality? Or does he just sweep up hair at the barbershop? He's nothing. He's like the town simpleton who does odd jobs. Yeah. But he's the finest actor ever to tread the boards, according yeah. to the story. His name's Harry Nash, and he, whenever he is playing a role, completely becomes that role effectively and is incredibly interesting. And then otherwise, he retreats into himself and is very yes. introverted. And It reminded me very much of a similar short story by Harlan Ellison. I forget even the title, but it's an actor, the world's best actor, who goes insane and starts slowly uh, reliving his roles in reverse. Yeah, And everyone wonders what's going to happen eight years from now when he gets to the first role he ever played. Or like, I, don't, I forget, but like every day he wakes up and he's acting like a previous oh, person. Weird. And Great. it gets to the end. It's not his best story. Oh. It gets to the end and someone looks in that morning and he has no face now. <laughs> and I'm like, that's a really ham-fisted version of this story. Because yeah. it's like the guy, it's like to truly act that great, you have to have no intrinsic personality. Seems mm. to be the only real point. But it's really just a cutesy little ditty. So this, yeah. this guy, Harry Nash, always says, who am I this time? When they come and ask him to audition, they yeah. stress that he doesn't need to audition. He's always the lead. He's always great at whatever he does. Right. That he wants to audition anyway, just because he's nice and he wants to be fair. He gets the part. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he does a good job. This girl sets her eyes on him. I'm going to rush us through the plot synopses. Totally fine. Because we're like three in, and there's like 40 stories in this book. <laughs> but in a nutshell, the plot synopsis is this girl has her eye on him. She plays Blanche. Over the course of production, she... Or, or she's, a, she's Stella. Stella. Because it's also this community theater where most of the people acting in it besides Harry Nash are old people. Because yeah. it's, they've, they're just always in it. And they need a young person to be Stella. So they've yeah. got a ton of Blanches and they need a Stella. And this new lady in town who works for the phone company is available. And they start a relationship while this production's going on. And she wants to turn him into an honest man and like be his wife. And everyone's warning her. This is just how he is. Like He's into you. Because right. he thinks he's Marlon Brando right now. When he drops character, he won't be into you anymore. Prepare yeah. yourself for that. And, and she's you like, won't be excited about him. No, I think I am, blah, blah, blah. And then she does figure out a solution, I guess. The clever solution yeah. is she... They sort of gloss over it, but the, the way their relationship works is they get married. The way their relationship works is he's always in a different character. Yeah, she convinces <laughs> him to play romantic leads. I think the first one's Romeo. Like, it's just yeah. always she convinces him to be people, and then they both discover that they can connect through plays where people are in love with each other and always do that and enjoy their life in that. And then at the end, they both ask, who am I this time? Ha, ha, ha. Yeah, so it's thing. like it's kind of like the inverse of be careful what you pretend to be because you become it. Oh, because yeah. it's like it's the, if you pretend concept. to be if you pretend to be in love and have a happy marriage, it might work out. Yeah, <laughs> like, there you go. <laughs> and uh, you know the success of arranged marriages backs that up. <laughs> yeah, I've read that in articles, and I'm always yeah that the, the statistically they work out about as well. Or somehow. just say you'd be surprised how often if you pick two people at random, put them together, and say you have to be together for the rest of your lives. They'll find a way to find the positive in that person because they know there's no option. You know, if they live in a society where they're not right. going to get divorced, then usually by the time they're both old, they've found all the good things in the other person and they like them a lot or they love them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Barring <laughs> loving them, they like them. So yeah. that's who am I this time. Do you have more analysis? There are three stories in this book where our point of view is an unnamed aluminum storm window and screen salesman. 
Yeah. Which is an incredibly specific <laughs> job that played, Kurt... In played the... very ably in Vonnegut USA yeah. by the third lead from the Tenacious D Pick of Destiny movie. Yeah, he was He great. did a good job. Really good. <laughs> and all three of the stories were written in the early 1960s. So there was just early in the Kennedy administration, Kurt decided, you know what my short stories need? Aluminum storm windows. As the, That's going to make them yeah. sing, man. That's it. The everyman protagonist <laughs> of my stories is this totally bland, but connected apparently yeah. storm window salesman <laughs> and i think i think he legitimately thinks like oh aluminum storm window salesman he's got a key to every house in right. the world they man. see everything because everybody they're needs windows, the windows. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you would know you freaking nerd did he ever work in storm window sales i believe he didn't i feel like it's supposed to be analogous to when he was selling sobs and cape cod he ran a it's a like his idea of like a, a good blue collar honest sales job <laughs> yeah, when it and it, I was kind of joking about oh, key to every house, but it, that's literally how it plays out in another story. It's I think it's go back go to back your, to your precious wife and son. Yeah, because because <laughs> the car dealership job let people come to Kurt, and I'm sure he met all kinds of people. But just for storytelling purposes, it's more handy to have someone who can go into people's houses and spend a lot of time there. And and in Hannesport's story, which is the other one where they have someone like this, he says that the person kind of is of no class because you never know if you're just going to install the windows and go or if they're going to kind of have you for drinks and hang out with you. So it's it's a very easy skeleton key into whatever situation he wants to write in. Yeah, we'll get yeah. there. We'll get so, there. The fun of storm windows. <laughs> but anyway, on to the next story. Welcome to the monkey house. It's the title story. It is. Here we are. It truly was a welcome to the monkey house. (laughs) And the monkey house was inside your welcome the whole time. (laughs) Little did we know, welcome would have more in common with the monkey house than we first suspected. (laughs) All right, welcome to the uh, monkey house. (laughs) uh, This story, it was written in 1960, or published in 1968, but probably written in 67, in Playboy. And it's by far the latest, it's the last chronological story in this, and probably part of the impetus for oh we can do a new version of canary in a cat house because i've got this great story and title you know here we go that explains why i was masturbating while i read it that's (laughs) weird i in retrospect i had to figure that out (laughs) i know i know that's a bit but i also the fact that it's in playboy makes it make more sense totally like it's a a dystopia about how you shouldn't stifle the sexual urge obviously playboy man that almost seems like he's like I'll write a story that Playboy will purchase. It really is like calculated. Yeah. yeah. And it and it has a very because I'm a big Bond fan, like very Sean Connery, James Bond approach to sexuality. Like it's the consent yeah. is not great. Oh. Uh, I have problems <laughs> with the story. It we'll like has aged it. poorly and probably shouldn't have been great in the first yeah. place. And it's pretty problematic in the way some of like in Thunderball, Sean Connery seduces a woman in a spa. And then they just cut to him walking out of the room and just like tossing off a she later. Like not even yeah. like it's very it's very that kind of oh yeah, men just hook up with whichever women they want. It's the way oh, it is. Yeah. Billy the poet. There's yeah. no two ways about it. Yeah. He's the coolest rapist ever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. A few people mentioned to us in the when we said, Oh, this is our next episode, they said, Oh, you'll probably have a Vana what section about this book yeah. and this this short story is where a lot of it comes from. I still feel like I'll get way too confused unless I we save them for the not that we can't talk about how it's problematic, but I'll save oh, my yeah. quotes for the for Vana sure. what section. For sure, sure. But yeah, it's another one. You probably read or at least heard about? I don't know. I don't remember yeah. if I read it as a signed reading, but... 
it's a relatively famous Miami yeah. Shore story, and, and partly because it's the title to his most famous collection. Kind of the same beats as Harrison Bergeron, but with a different thing. The thing this time yeah. is in the society, there's too much overpopulation. Their solution is mandatory birth control. You take three times a day. The reason people are okay with it is that it doesn't hamper your right to reproduce. It just makes your genitals totally like numb and tingly and feel like a wet sponge so that you have no pleasure. Actually, it says it makes you feel that way from the waist down. So I don't know how these people are walking around. Maybe it's a Segway-based society. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, everyone's legs are asleep. Are asleep all the time, time and they're used to it, I guess. A lot of staggering, yeah. And you're fined $10,000 if you forget to take your pill. Three times a day, which Jesus Christ, I would just forget, like honestly forget. Oh, right. All the time. Yeah, I'm not on top of my habits. Exactly. (laughs) And then also assisted suicide is legal. And the, you know, those are the two prongs of the fork they're using to approach the overpopulation problem. Yeah. There's a guy named Billy the Poet who's like, hey guys, no, I stopped taking my pills and I have sex with people and it turns out it's enjoyable. Right. So he starts kidnapping women, waiting till the pills wear off raping them. I'm yep. not going to stop using that word no, because I don't want to soften it. it. And then they always like it and are like, join his rebellion. And it sort of hints that eventually maybe there will be an uprising and the world will go back to the way it is now where you're where you're allowed to have sex if you want if you want yeah because they call the people who have stopped taking their pills nothing heads is the term for them and they're treated like they're terrorists and they treat are treated like complete deviants because they want to have sex at all which is sort of an interesting thing of oh yeah i mean our yeah. decisions on what makes you a deviant are relative 1984 is 1984 for a reason. I really think it's like the most cerebrally satisfying dystopia novel or thing like I've ever been exposed to. But Vonnegut does a lot of dystopia, and I like his dystopia best when it reminds me of 1984. There's a great line in this one, which is nothing heads, they call them, people who aren't on the pill. It wasn't just Billy the Poet who was attracted to hostesses in ethical suicide parlors. All nothing heads were bombed out of their skulls with the sex madness that came from constantly taking nothing. <laughs> it reminded me so much of Newspeak from 1984, where I just love that the way the society has managed to make this insane thing acceptable to the populace is you describe literally not doing anything as being a drug addict. Yeah. It's cool. Like... People who aren't taking the pill we all take are addicted to nothing. Right. A being on nothing versus it makes it sound unnatural. (laughs) It's like calling pro-life pro-life to imply that everyone else is like pro-baby death. Yeah, it's really winning the terminology. Or like calling what it is alt-right, you know, yeah, well, no, it's more than that. (laughs) Or as Billy the Poet does, raping a woman as your associates hold her down and then saying... This was our wedding night. Right. He says, yeah, he says, normally in a classic wedding night, the woman would have consented, but otherwise the spirit of the occasion is much the same. (laughs) Yeah. That's like saying, yeah, we're going to have a parade. Well, I mean, we're going to shoot some orphans in the gutter, but otherwise the spirit is much the same. Right. But people are in a line. So <laughs> yeah, people, we're going to line some pretty people parady up. if you think about it. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's all I have to say about the plot until we get to Vanawat. Yeah. When it's also, and I wish it wasn't so centered on things that are pretty repugnant because this wasn't something that Kurt 
just tossed off. There's a new special edition of Welcome to the Monkey House, which has a section where a uh, Vonnegut scholar named Gregory Sumner goes way in depth on his writing process, specifically with this story. And the early drafts of it are a lot different and had a lot of different structure and focuses on characters. He always wrote from that basic dystopia of this is how sex and reproduction work now. But the early drafts, at one point, it's centered on a gruff businessman named Greta Garbal, who he was like a franchisee of the suicide parlor Howard Johnson's. But Greta Garbo had to be a known name at that point, right? Yeah, I think it was. He was trying to do some kind of joke. Really, a sound alike of Greta? I don't. Yeah, because she's from the thirties or so. So yeah, I don't. I don't understand the joke. Okay, it's not funny. (laughs) Uh, But he'd like run the parlors and like uh, chat with people and get to know them before they kill themselves. And he was sort of supposed to be this kind of Vonnegut standing. There was also a draft of it where Greta Garbal has one employee who is a dwarf named Kurt Vonnegut Jr. And he testifies before Congress about whether these parlors are a good idea or not. Just all kinds of terrible ideas. Yeah. It's like the early drafts of Star Wars Blue Harvest. Right. uh, Luke Starkiller was four feet tall. And they're like, a few changes, George. Yeah. 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 So he he really improved the movement of the plot. But he also, Mm -hmm. with all of these stories, he was very dogged about doing a lot of drafts and really pushing to make them. And they and most of them are very tight. They really move, you know. Yeah. But this one, he he really wrote a lot of versions of this where it still had a essentially an overlong build up to a rape. As part of it, which is not great. <laughs> we should also probably mention that Frank Wirtanen, the spy master from Mother Night, is referenced in passing again. I don't know why, for no reason. <laughs> yeah. As having eventually become the skipper of the Marlin, which is one of the Kennedy's family's boats. Right. And so I guess I like to imagine that was his retirement from the spy business as he became the boat chauffeur. Of the Kennedy family. <laughs> yeah, because also he, he does retire in Mother Night. So this is, yeah. that's like a secondary retirement, which is, and he, and this short story is written years after Mother Night. So I don't, but I he don't doesn't know, have to tell, the poll, but it's just something he decided to do. In the letter at the end of Mother Night, he doesn't have to tell Campbell what he's been doing in his retirement. Maybe oh. he just omitted it. Or he doesn't have to tell the truth about it either. He could just be making I'm up. I'm telling you, he was skippering the Marlin, driving Kennedy around. And Kennedy's like, Era, did you hear? They're going to execute that Campbell. And he's like, that's when he felt bad. And he's like, I got to write this guy. Uh, I should yeah, do something. It was JFK's doing. Champagne was as illegal as heroin. Yeah. Line. There's a lot of objectionable things about the story. Also, it's a pretty well put together dystopia. And I really like what they do with the process of these pills coming into being that make people sexless it's a very clever and pointed and believable approach where just a very very moralistic man is at the zoo and is offended by the monkeys and so he comes up with in front of his children an anti-monkey desire pill and then it ends up being used on people it's pretty clever and and well done some religious people start taking it and then some people who just don't want to have sex start taking it and then eventually everyone takes it and then it becomes mandatory to take it right (laughs) (laughs) and i like how when kurt's describing how the pill works and he says yeah it got rid of sex because it makes you numb from the waist down and then there's just one line ending it of thus did science and morals go hand in hand just a nice little punch <laughs> of like yeah that's how you do it you just nice creepily mess with everyone punch to the genitals yeah. for you <laughs> shall we whip away yeah let's go on to the next story which is long walk to forever oh yeah just as bad <laughs> <laughs> i also don't like this story for reasons that will become clear in vana what 
Yeah. In the intro to the book, Kurt says that he originally titled this Hell to Get Along With. And to quote Kurt, it describes an afternoon I spent with my wife to be shame, shame to have lived scenes from a woman's magazine. Because this was published in a woman's <laughs> magazine. Right. So it's also, also problematic. Come to on, say, Kurt. But fine. But it's about a guy was, named Newt. Yeah, and uh, it's really about Kurt and his wife, Jane, her almost not marrying him and marrying another guy, which really happened. But he came back I from see. the war and convinced her. Yeah, so it's a guy, childhood sweethearts, the guys at war, the woman's grown up and engaged. He goes AWOL to come back, says, I've always loved you. Let's us be married and you should walk out on your fiance who we never meet. And she goes, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and he's really forceful and it just takes them through their day. Again, it's like uh, there's lines like, and he was right. Women couldn't hide that they're in love. So he kissed her again because she wanted him to. Even though she just said, please don't kiss me. Yeah. He's like, I can see the consent in your eyes. So I'm going for it. <laughs> and then the author explicitly is like, and she did. She liked it. <laughs> so whatever. I didn't like this one. <laughs> yeah. it's. I mean, it's not straight up assault, but it is that kind of creepy, she wants you to kiss her thing that we see in a lot of pop culture and is not and with that, super even that, great all the time. It's just the classic thing of romantic comedies where you only care about the main characters and they get together and the person was engaged and you're supposed to just forget that right. you're like, what about that fiance person who we never met? <laughs> yeah. This probably yeah. super sucks for them. <laughs> right. The Dermot Mulroney character gets steamrolled. Exactly. It's one of those. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's and all it, I got about that one. Yeah, it's sci-fi list. I think it's it's pretty well written as a piece of fiction and yeah. and yeah, and it is a little bit problematic, a little bit straight up real life and cute. Yep. Yeah. Quip. <laughs> Yeah, we're really ripping through now because we got a lot of stories to go. Yeah, yeah, it's a long collection. Uh, <laughs> the next story is called The Foster Portfolio. Yep. And this is another one with uh, very little sci-fi to it. This was published I'd early. I'd say in none. Kurt's... What little sci-fi did you pick up on? Uh, nothing. <laughs> yeah, there's no... What are okay. pianos? What <laughs> yeah. even is that? You know? And this was in Collier's Magazine in 1951. So it was very early in Kurt's run of gotcha. writing anything. What's the guy's name? Obviously, it's Foster. It's Herbert Foster. Herbert Foster. There's also, it's a funny line to me, and especially funny for being early Vonnegut, where he's describing Herbert's wife. He's a little bit mean about describing her, but there's a funny line when he says, Herbert said her name was Alma, which seemed entirely possible. That's my first blurt. Amazing. I was just about to say that. <laughs> Great. But it's told from the point of view of basically a financial consultant yeah. who cares very much about money. Views people with a lot of money as better than people with little money. Yeah. Or is openly rude to poor people because he doesn't see, well, you can't give me money, so why should I be polite to you? Yeah. That kind of guy. He's a little bit Ransom Fern <laughs> from yeah. uh, Sirens or a little bit more maybe Norman Mushari, where well, it's like he's tracking Norman. money. I yeah, like Ransom. Not, yeah, Ransom, Ransom is a better guy than this guy. So this guy basically feels obliged out of politeness to give a free consultation to this guy who he knows is poor. So he's like, I'm not going to get any money out of this. But he gets trapped in social awkwardness and is like, fine, what's your thing? And is really <laughs> rude to him. And the guy's like, well, uh, see, I have this money. And he shows him something. And he's like, whoa, holy crap, sir. May I call you Herbert? Well, yeah. we have much to discuss. Because this guy who seems poor and has a rundown house and his wife is described as homely, I guess, because he's poor. Yeah, and, <laughs> and shrewish, which is not great. <laughs> yeah, secretly has a ton of money. Yeah, I think it, they value it initially as three quarters of a million dollars, which in 1950s money is so much it's more money. still exactly that amount. It's just <laughs> worth more buying power. Oh. oh. <laughs> Here's what you should know about Herbert. 
He's a volunteer firefighter who secretly plays piano at jazz clubs at night. So obviously yeah. Kurt Vonnegut likes him. <laughs> like anyone who's a volunteer firefighter is the hero. It's very good Kurt shorthand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When it, and it has a reasonably nice payoff, I thought, where Herbert is working seven days a week doing a couple jobs. The guy's like, why do you work three jobs? You have three quarters of a million dollars. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. And it turns out that one of the jobs, which is at a really rundown restaurant, is because he's secretly the jazz pianist there and he can play the piano. And he outwardly claims, oh, I don't want to be like my crazy father who left us to play the piano. I want to, I want to be a person who, who is a really solid person, but secretly he loves being a jazz pianist. And he has this right. alias, Firehouse Harris, which is very Duke Silver, Parks and Rec. Yeah. So uh, basically one of those things, money doesn't make you happy. This is a guy who actively recognizes that and chooses to stay poor and do three jobs. It ends with him saying, I don't want the money, basically. Or like, I just want it set aside. Because he doesn't want to be rich and do nothing. He likes being active and having these jobs where he gets to do these interesting things, which is bullshit because I would think his wife would at least want to know that yeah. it's an option that they have three quarters of a million dollars. It, is, it seems mean of him to put her through all that so yeah. he can play the piano. Yeah. All right. The Foster Portfolio, everyone. Whipping on. All right. Next story. It's called Miss Temptation. Jeez. Okay. I read these in multiple sittings, so I didn't realize... There are really good sci-fi stories later, but we're hitting like five in a row that are like women. Like the point (laughs) of the story is women. Jeez. Again, who organized this collection? Right. Very poorly done. Miss Temptation was in the Saturday Evening Post in 1956. And you can tell partly because someone comes back from Korea. And so that's... And you can definitely tell that... He was writing it before, after, or around the same time as, I guess that's all the possibilities, Um, (laughs) Cat's Cradle, because he is trying to very quickly describe the most beautiful woman in the world, and he describes her word for word the same as, what's her name, Manzano, Mona Mona Manzano. Her hips were like a liar, and her bosom made men dream of peace and plenty forever and ever. Right. That's Cat's Cradle, bro. <laughs> yeah, and it's about a small town where this impossibly beautiful woman has a daily walk down the street where she that gets she takes to... barefoot. Disgusting. Right. Which yeah, gross. Walking around town barefoot. Uh, yeah, I love socks. You gotta wear. <laughs> so she does uh, her every day at noon walk through town to go get the New York papers and be fancy and be beautiful and be an object of desire to everyone. And then Corporal Norman Fuller, who is back from Korea gets mad at her one of these days for doing that and chews her out for being someone who is kind of a pinup and makes everybody want them just because it makes them feel good. And then that sort of breaks her heart. And she decides to move away from the town. Right. (laughs) It's literally the story of an attractive but perfectly in her rights woman walking into a store, an old man yelling, you cocktease, (laughs) and she moves away. Right. That's the story. Yeah, it's not even... And he feels bad. I mean, the moral is he feels bad that he did that. So Vonnegut knows it's bad, but I'm still like, this poor woman, he didn't need to move away from the town. (laughs) Yeah, because it's not even what we would call today slut shaming. It's just being pretty shaming like it's just (laughs) it's a story to make the men reading it realize oh did you know beautiful women also have feelings inside yeah and are people and yeah yeah. and it's like oh i guess they needed that story in 1955 i guess some people still do but (laughs) boring to me now because i'm like yeah that guy's a dick she's fine moving on when there's also And with a lot of these stories, so one of Kurt's letters in 1950, he writes to his friend Miller, Miller Harris and is talking about 
trying to write short stories and get at that going. And offhand, he mentions, I can never get women into my stories. And I think some of these stories are attempts to, dang it, I'm going to write a story about a woman. I'm just going to do it. And it's still kind of ham-fisted because he's not perfect at it. This feels like one of those. He's like, you know what? I want a story about a woman. Here's a good no. and true thing. Pretty women have feelings and hearts, too. And then this was his approach at it. And he's it's, trying. <laughs> it has issues, but also works in some like ways. The guy says, you come in here with bells on your ankles, so I'll have to look at your ankles and your pretty pink feet. You kiss the cat, so I'll have to think about how it'd be to be that cat. I'm like, that's not why she's doing those things. Right. <laughs> she didn't do that for you to stare at her pink feet. Right, right. You fucking creep. <laughs> and then, and he kind of gets told that in the story, but also kind of... That's the end of the story not. is him yeah. going, oh, shit, I was a dick. That's the end of the story. Yeah, Moving and they on. walk down the street <laughs> together. In a sense. Yeah. On to the next, next story. It's called All the King's Horses. Mm-hmm. And... Finally. <laughs> some Twilight Zone, like, sci-fi setup, sci-fi punchline. Not even sci-fi. Technically, but I mean, you know what I mean. It really felt like a good Twilight Zone episode. Uh, this appeared in Collier's Magazine also in 1951. And also, I was looking at the set of stories in Canary in a Cat House. There's 11 of them from this that were that collection. I'm not going to read all of them. You can just look it up. But Canary in a Cat House was really heavy on war stories, on sci-fi stories, and on a little bit more of a Twilight zone approach. Sounds yeah. like I would have liked that collection better. But yeah. <laughs> we're exhaustive here at Vano Guys. <laughs> All the King's Horses, your setup is American POWs are captured, and they're traveling when they're captured. So it includes the main character, I think, is his name... It's Brian, Brian Kelly. Kelly. Yeah. <laughs> like my good friend Brian Kelly. That's so weird. Yeah. Think, Hi, Brian. So, Brian I think Kelly. was a football player or coach. Oh, it jumps out to me. Yeah. Also, a good friend of the show. <laughs> he was with his wife and child. Yeah. Their plane went down, and I think it's an unnamed communist country. But Oh, no. They name it. Well, see, they're playing chess against the leader of this country who is called P. Ying. Yeah. He's the leader, I believe, of Urine Nation. <laughs> right. I, until you read it out loud, I didn't direct that. It's <laughs> yeah. such a silly joke. Such an <laughs> offensive joke. <laughs> right. But yeah, some unspecified Asiatic person named P. Ying right. captured them and just is a complete racist stereotype of like a mongol warlord yeah like ming the merciless i'm going to torture you american filth until you all die he he and his subordinates are straight up described as orientals yes and And he also there's a guy named major barzov who is his russian major domo but we find out is really pulling the strings because out of russia this is obviously some satellite state that's in the pocket of the soviet union yeah the real power but the story is they make him play chess for their lives they have a giant human sized chessboard and uh p ying controls the black side and the americans are the white men get it yeah get and it? i even pointed out yeah like, well Aye. i do like uh yeah the white men get to go first a long-standing tradition yeah that was a nice a pretty, burn nice burn yeah and it's a sophie's choice situation well you want to take him through the punchline i stole the setup so you get the punchline <laughs> well so yeah so there are 16 exactly americans who've been captured and some of them are mr kelly's wife and kids and so they're all forced to be the chess pieces and so every time he loses a piece a person is killed Get and some of them are his wife and his children you know yep. and so he does a gambit where he risks his child in order to lure p yang into a check not just risks him he does a sequence of moves where if you play chess you know he feels that his opponent's forced to do the following three moves right. and that will end in checkmate which will free the survivors if right. they win the game so like he's positive he is sending his eldest son to be executed right and it's really cool because he's looking at his wife like what is she going to think when i do this is she even going to understand what's happening yeah 
how can I do this? Oh shit, I'm doing it. I have to save everyone. Yeah. Oh shit. Oh shit. Rook to a four. Oh god, I just killed my son. It's really intense. <laughs> yeah. I didn't totally love how he works out that the son's piece gets captured, but the son doesn't get killed. It just sort of has a, they, oh, the story's well, resolved. It's somewhat believable in the sense that P. Yang and the Russian guy, Barzov, are just like, we were fucking with you. We're not such monsters that we'd execute the children. We did. Uh, yeah, like, they true. execute yeah. several soldiers, but then when the kid piece gets captured, Barzov is like, he toys with me. He's like, oh, maybe I will kill him. No, just <laughs> put him over there. It's just clear that they just, I think, aren't going to kill the kid because it's a kid at the end of the day. They do say, we don't want that much political trouble with America at this juncture. Yeah, He says, like, I would gladly kill you all, including your wife and children, but it would just not be strategically wise at this point in the war based on what we're doing here. Yeah, But anyway, P. Ying has, like, a concubine next to him who gets so upset by what's going on that she assassinates P. Ying to try and save everyone. She, in turn, gets killed by the guards immediately. Barzov insists they finish the game. The guy does finish the game. Barzov says, well, that doesn't prove you're smarter than me because P. Ying, like, fucked up the board or I would have beaten you. Right. Which, I'm sorry, it doesn't prove you're smarter than them even if you win because they're playing with the threat of life and death. Like, right. that duress affects your chess game, dude. Yeah. This wouldn't be a rated game, you know what I mean? Yeah. And the end <laughs> is basically just a pissing contest where the Russian guy says, like, maybe we should play chess again. Yeah. Rematch. And he goes, oh, I'll have a rematch anytime you want, you Russian (laughs) bastard. Right. That's the end. (laughs) And then they smooch. On to the next story. Yep. This story is called Tom Edison's Shaggy Dog. I mentioned that where I live felt like a little bit of a shaggy dog thing. This is literally a shaggy dog thing. But I don't know, plays relatively pleasantly. And this one is from Collier's in 1953. So another early story. Again, just like a charming happenstance from about town. (laughs) Yeah. A guy trying to sit in the park and be alone and contemplative, constantly being harassed by a really annoying guy who just wants to talk and visit about his business interests and all his accomplishments. He wants to like brag to a stranger because that's how he kills time in the park. Yeah. And the annoying guy has a dog. And then, so the guy who's trying to be by himself says, well, all right, here's a story. I knew Thomas Edison. When he was trying to figure out the light bulb, he built a device that measures someone's intelligence. And he found out that a dog is way smarter than we are. And then the dog said, all right, I'm very, very smart. Don't tell anybody. And also, here's how to make a light bulb. And this freaks out right. the talking. The dog guy said, it's a, it's a big scam, see? We get all this free food and housing. Please don't tell people we're smart. In exchange, I'll tell you all the Thomas Edison inventions. So right. you can be Thomas Edison. <laughs> and the guy's like, did that really happen? And uh, the main character, I think, gives him the dog's leash or something. Oh, no. Okay, he ends the story by saying, unfortunately, that dog, the Thomas Edison's dog in the story was immediately ripped apart by a pack of other wild dogs for giving away the secret. And so he says, he like hands him his dog's leash and he's like, here, a gift from an ancestor of yours who didn't know when to stop talking. In other words, will you leave me alone at the park and shut up? Otherwise, I will have wild dogs tear you apart, okay? (laughs) Leave me alone. (laughs) Also, obscure way of saying your ancestor is a dog. You're a son of a bitch. Right, yeah. <laughs> and it's sort of a, it's a classic sort That's it. Of, it's just like a cute ditty again. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit of a, who's the master of the short story twist? Oh, Henry? Like, it's just, it's yes. just a whole story where it's a twist and that's, that's it. Yeah. We did it. It's an O. Henry. Yeah. Speaking of which. The next story is called New Dictionary. But can you call it a story? I don't it's know. It's an essay. Yeah. It's an essay. Yeah. <laughs> this is, it's just Kurt straight up telling us about the overall 
situation of dictionary publication and some interesting things he finds about language and life in looking closely at a dictionary just overthinking it stupid but it actually wasn't my least favorite story slash essay it's all right it's almost a feat to see how he can make just literally reviewing whether the dictionary is good or not and differences between this version and the last and what it says about society interesting it's like uh, one of abe epperson's favorite documentaries is just about how they make paper and one of both of our favorite documentaries is Cane Toads, a documentary about when Cane Toads uh, oh. invaded Australia. And That's cool. they're amazing because you're like, how is this not boring? It's amazing this isn't boring. Yeah. yeah. So, New Dictionary is uh, literally just a description of the dictionary at his home. Yeah. And it's not the best story you've ever read, but you'll be surprised how it's not the worst story you've ever read. <laughs> yeah, it, when it, it ran in the New York Times in late 1966, which means Kurt had five novels under his belt. Mm-hmm. And I think this is another one of the few stories in this that was, oh, Kurt Vonnegut talking about a dictionary. Yeah, all right, I'll check it out. Like That was the rationale yeah. for publishing it. And it reminded me of, this is going to sound like a huge compliment, it's really just a uh, small one it reminded me of mark twain because i've read a lot of mark twain's short fiction and short things Mm -hmm. and he did a lot of these little kinds of essays where he just does a mental deep dive on a thing in the world and you know writes it pretty entertainingly yeah fine yeah next the next Uh, story i intentionally tried to catch brett while he was drinking his snapple so he'd fuck up the whip you caught me swallowing i I think too so i'm burning this thing to the ground Next Door is the name of the story. Next Door. Yeah. And this story was published in Cosmopolitan in 1955. Also, if you don't know, Cosmopolitan was a primarily like a short fiction magazine in the middle of the 20th century. It was not, I think in one of Kurt's essays, he calls it a sex manual now. Uh, (laughs) But back in the day, it was mainly a place for cosmopolitan people to read fiction. Yeah, Cosmopolitan, if you didn't know, is also a thing you could be, (laughs) used to be. Like a New Yorker? Yeah, what do you do? I'm a plumber. What do you do? I'm a gadabout. Okay. (laughs) I would subscribe to Gadabout magazine. I'm a man about town. (laughs) Next door is about a duplex. And uh, based on some of the other stories in this compendium, we could be like, and he just describes it. (laughs) But it's not. (laughs) Stuff happens in this one. There's a kid. His parents leave him alone for the first time. Right? Like, they're going to go to a movie. I think my favorite line in the whole thing is... He really wants to go to the movie. He can't because it's too adult-themed. Right. That makes him curious. So he's like, can you even tell me what it's about? And I'm scrolling through, and I don't want to waste time, but they say something like, it's about a woman reckoning with some of the poor choices she's made in her life. And he's like, that sounds boring. (laughs) (laughs) So he agrees to stay home. The parents uh, argue about whether he's old enough, but ultimately leave him home alone with very explicit instructions that the world is dangerous. Don't answer the door. Don't do anything. You know, just stay in your room and look through your microscope like you like to do. (laughs) Yeah. And we'll be back in three hours. And it it becomes that it's a pretty classic, I think, story about children and childhood where basically the message is, it's like in one of the Star Wars prequels, Anakin, you stay in that cockpit and then adventures anyway. You can't keep kids away from adventures, man. The world is mature. The world is going to be crazy. You can't control when your kid grows up to some degree. Yeah. Because he's going to grow up real fast. What yeah. happens, Alex? Well, they, at the very beginning, Kurt says that this is a duplex where the wall between the two places is incredibly thin and right. all noise goes through, yeah. which makes me wonder, why did anyone move in? Crazy. But Paul stays home. He's a kid. And he hears horrible fighting between the neighbors, Lemuel K. Harger, and a woman he's with. 
and he assumes this is Lemuel and his wife. It turns out it's not because the fighting grows and grows between the two people and the two people next door turn up their radio to try to drown it out. Because they start yelling like, you know that there's a kid next door. You're yelling like this and a kid can hear you. (laughs) And she's like, I don't care. Then turn the radio on. I don't care about that kid. Right. And the kid's like. (laughs) (laughs) And so the radio DJ is taking requests. And so Paul is like, okay, I got an idea. And he calls the station and calls in a, hey, I'm Lemuel K. Harger. And I love my wife so much. And I want to reconcile to the radio station. I want to make a dedication. Kids might not know this happens anymore. I'm dedicating a love song called like, can't we work it out to my wife. Right. So then it lasts. Loudly comes on the radio while they're fighting, and the, everything's silent. Yeah, and and they turn the radio off, and he's like, "Oh, I saved their marriage." And he hears the woman go, "You said you were going to leave your wife. You want to get back together with your wife?" And then he hears three gunshots, <laughs> <laughs> and he assumes they're dead. I forget, I think it turns out that they're not dead. Again, she just got mad. I think Vonnegut wanted to kill people, but felt like people weren't ready for it, or it wouldn't get published. Yeah, All the king's agreed. horses, the kids should obviously die. And in this, the person should obviously be dead. But what happens is yeah. the cops come because of the gunshots. They knock on both doors. I'm sorry, before the cops come, he walks out and he bumps into the woman right. who's briefly considers kidnapping him, but doesn't, and just like gives him some candy from her purse and is like, you didn't see nothing and runs away. <laughs> and then she sees that the dude, the husband, Harger, Mr. Harger comes out and he's not dead. She must have just shot the wall or something. Right. And that's the end. And his parents come home and they're like, you know, the cute ending. How was your night? And he was like, it was fine. Yeah. And and neighbor Lemuel's wife comes and they reconcile. And it's like, I'm so glad you said that. And so that works out too. And that's pretty, it works out very nicely and very positively. I should say in one of Kurt's letters to Knox in 1952, he complains about how audiences just don't seem to be ready for a harsh enough criticism of anything. Like there was a story of his called The Commandant's Desk that'll be in a later collection because it was unpublished, but audiences were not ready for any criticism of the military at all. And he's like, oh, my story tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, nobody's ready for talking about any mores that are accepted that are wrong. I got that. So I I do think that's a thing in some of these stories he's sidestepping a little bit. That's next door. Next. The next story is more stately mansions. And uh, more stately mansions ran in Colliers in 1951. It's another early joint. It is about the crazy cat lady from the Simpsons program, <laughs> which we've referenced, I believe, before on this show. It's about a woman who is obsessed with interior decorating. Yeah. It's told from the point of view of this couple who just moved into a neighborhood and the first neighbors they meet are a husband and wife. And the wife is so obsessed with interior decorating. All she'll talk about for hours as she comes over every day is walking around the house going, you know, you can take egg crates and turn them into a thing. And you could put a little chamois dust ruffle on that. And you should move that piece of furniture over there. And it wouldn't it look great if you reupholstered it. Yeah. And then they, for the first time, go to visit their house, like to have dinner with them at their house instead of having her insult all their furniture <laughs> and they realize that they live in like a burnt out flop house apartment with right. just like wooden coffee table and chairs and nothing yeah and it's because she's so obsessed with the way her house is going to look when she's decorated it the way she imagines is yeah. so strong and vivid that not only is she putting off doing it because they don't have the money but she delusionally believes that it's true like she literally walks around the house going like don't you like this alcove here? And you have to go like, yeah, it looks good. <laughs> but it's the alcove she's describing will be there in the future. Right. That's and then, how she copes yeah. with it. Yeah. Basically, she gets sick, goes to the hospital. 
very conveniently at the same time her husband comes into a lot of money. He loves her so much, he decides to go through her. She has these giant filing cabinets with everything she wants to do the house. He has it all done. The only thing they couldn't do is the color of like a drape in the kitchen. So it's slightly different color yellow. She comes home. I thought she was going to come home and flip out and hate it. And it was going to be really dark. It's a cute, happy story. She comes home and she loves her husband and everything's great. It's a really happy ending for them. No one ever diagnosed her mental disorder. (laughs) uh, And she gets to just live happily. And the punchline is just her going, they're like, did you like it? The decorations. And she's like, yeah, it's just weird how that one drape held its color for 10 years and then like I'm gone for a week and it changes color slightly. So in other words, she was so delusional that she doesn't see it as, oh, now my dreams became real. She thinks those things were there. Someone replaced this one drape, but everything else always was there. The end. Crazy lady story. (laughs) 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 No, 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 no. You got whipped, dude. It's over. The next story is called the Hyannis Port story. And I'm going to let you tell this whole one because I don't remember it. (laughs) Well, this one, it has a little bit of an interesting publication history because the Hyannis Port you may recognize as a big Kennedy location in real life. And this story was accepted by the Saturday Evening Post in 1963, but then they scrapped it before publishing it because of the Kennedy assassination. So this was Makes sense. never published, but it was accepted by a magazine, and nobody wanted to do a story to where JFK is just hanging out immediately after he was brutally murdered. Right, because it's not like you wrote a story where JFK gets murdered or is shown in a poor light. He just is in the story. But people yeah. were like, ah, we don't even want to think about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it is also, so it's also primarily following this. This is our second story in the collection about a storm window salesman who's got a skeleton key to every house in the world, man. And he gets to know a family of Rumfords who live in Hyannisport. They're not the other Rumfords from before. They just have that last name. And this story is very based on politics of the early 60s. So JFK is one side, and then Barry Goldwater, who you may or may not know anything about, is the Republican conservative other side. And uh, the Rumfords love Goldwater, and they love him so much they have a giant portrait statue of Barry it's, Goldwater at their house that they floodlight all night to so JFK and, has to look at it all the time. Yeah, they live next door to the Kennedys. Yeah. So it's a giant Barry Goldwater face with floodlights on it and the eyes are like red glowing lights. Yeah, they're so like bike reflectors like, or something. Oh, yeah. bike reflectors. So yeah, they shine so red when the floodlight. And, so it's like, yeah, he basically thinks he's tormenting them with this annoyance, this Barry Goldwater demon that must that must get their goat. Yeah. Because basically this Rumford guy is a crotchety old money guy who's never worked but thinks the world is made up of lazy welfare takers. Even though he's never had a job, he right. thinks the world is bad because of <laughs> other people who don't do enough work. And he hates the Kennedys because they're bleeding heart liberals and he's this ultra-conservative guy who just sits on his porch being ultra-conservative. Yeah, he and Kurt didn't write this too long before God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater, and he reminds me of Lister Rosewater, the crotchety totally. senator a little bit. It's sort of that same template. And in the meantime in this story, we get to know... That the family hates the Kennedys, but also their son, Robert Taft Rumford, keeps disappearing and sneaking off. And it turns out he's in love with a Irish fourth cousin of the Kennedys. Which and so, sounds like an SNL character, like a Kate McKinnon. Right. Or like a comedy bang bang, someone comes on as that. I'm the Irish fourth cousin of the uh, Kennedys. <laughs> What's a Massachusetts then? I don't know. Uh, uh, toy or uh, That's a hard mix to pull so, off. Yeah, it's very tricky. So uh, they fall in love, and then it's sort of a Romeo and Juliet thing where, oh, now these families have to get, have to get along kind of because of the love. And 
And then at the very end, the patriarch of the Rumfords is a little bit brokenhearted about this. And then that he the loves end, the Kennedy, that his son loves the Kennedy. Right. And he's like, and so then at the night, at the end of the story, he says, you know what? Don't turn on the lights on the Goldwater. I, eh, it's, it's fine. I and guess. it's this like, the world is changing. It's not my time anymore. I give up kind of vibe. Yeah. yeah. And he says like, oh, I'm just really a rich guy who sits on his porch. huh?" And then JFK is Himself. driving by their house and then stops and says, hey, turn on the lights on the Goldwater. I'm with a Khrushchev cousin and he wants to see it. Yeah. And then I have a visiting dignitary and all we tell him about is these delightful <laughs> lights that our crazy neighbor puts up. Why aren't they up? Yeah. And the guy is like, yes, sir, Mr. President. Sorry, I'll have them turned right on. Yeah. So it's just like the complete defeat. I mean, <laughs> given the time it was written, it seems to me like it's Vonnegut sort of saying or hoping the Kennedys were the beginning of this new liberal movement that was coming in and yeah. sweeping out these old guys. And it was just sort of a little anecdote about that. Yeah, and a more positive politics. And, and so it's particularly heartbreaking that JFK was shot yeah. in real life. And that you can think you're pissing someone off and they can just think it's funny. <laughs> right. <laughs> Next story is called DP. I just did a quick Bing video search for DP to get some context on oh. this. Bad call. Can we roll a clip? Bad do- yeah, can we roll, roll a clip? <laughs> Brett's trying to whip us out of the story, but I refuse to. DP is a military term. It's like R&R. I eventually looked up and was able to find out. Oh, good. It stands for like development and something I should have written down. But it's a double meaning for what happens in the story. Pleasure. I don't know. Freaking love this story. This is the only two stories made me cry in this book. This was one. Oh, yeah. DP is about an orphanage in World War II. One? I believe I believe Civil it was a little unclear. Franco-Prussian. <laughs> well, because it was it's an orphanage where there's a young boy. He's a young black boy who is probably culturally German. Yeah, culturally German, but probably the descendant of an American soldier. And then there are also American military units in the area. Yeah, so it's one. It's like a nun-led orphanage with all the orphans who have been orphaned by the war. He doesn't yeah. know anything about his parents. He's a young kid, so he. It's written from his perspective, and he doesn't understand basic things in the way that children don't. Yeah. And he doesn't, he's never seen the ocean. He doesn't know that there's a body of water that big, that there's, he doesn't know where America is and stuff like that. Yeah. And that's all important because every day the nuns walk past a certain area, and one day they're walking past, I'm going to gloss over some of the detail, yeah. but they're walking past, and there's American soldiers, because the war's happening, yeah. bivouacking for the night. Like, they're setting up a station where, like, 30 of them are going to sleep in this friendly territory, and then they're going to move on into German territory and keep fighting. Yeah. And there's a black soldier, right? and everyone is being hella racist, and it's like, hey, your dad's here. Hey, it's your dad. <laughs> and he takes it literally and thinks, oh, shit, that's my dad. And he runs away from the orphanage in the middle of the night and goes into the camp to meet the soldiers. And there's a lot of just racism in the movie. I don't know why. I, I don't to... think from Vonnegut. No. And like, I would didn't have Vonnegut in here. No, but I don't yeah, think so. Obviously, yeah. it reflects very much that... Well, yeah. especially Europeans like the local, in the 40s the locals, are pretty racist. <laughs> yeah, and, and the locals all call the kid Joe because Joe Lewis is the most famous black He's person the only they know. black person they can think of. Yeah. Uh, and then at one point, somebody gives him a chocolate bar and they're like, see, like you, you know, uh, which is weird. But uh, he goes to the soldiers and they are very kind to him and they give him chocolate and they and he and asks, remember he only speaks german right and they only so they ask him like what's your name and he yeah. says in english joe lewis and they're like oh this kid's awesome yeah. <laughs> like the, i mean that's Great cool bit. yeah this kid <laughs> thinks he's joe lewis the heavyweight champion of the world yeah so they love him all the soldiers like the gruff sergeant they're like can we give him all our candy and the sergeant's like 
I don't know what you're talking about. We never had any candy. It fell off the truck. So they give him all the candy. <laughs> right. So they like, they're really happy to see him and they give the kid this one good night. Yeah. And then they are like, now let's drive you back to the orphanage. The kid does not understand that that's not his father. Right. They can't communicate that. The kid also doesn't understand why they literally can't take him. Like they're going to a place where he would be killed. Right. He doesn't know that. So he like latches onto the guy and won't let them take yeah. him away. They have to drag him off crying and he'll only eventually let the soldier leave him when he promises he'll come back and adopt him and take him to Amer- home to America to be his son. Yeah. And that I fucking cried because <laughs> the story ends with him in the orphanage and the kids are like, where'd you get that huge box of candy bars? And he's like, my dad, and he's coming back for me and I'm going to live in America across the sea. Yeah. And it's a Vonnegut war story. So you fucking know that guy's, it's not gonna that happen. guy's going to die in the battle that he's headed to. Right. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, really well done. Yeah. yeah. Good one. <laughs> and then next story, it's called Report on the Barnhouse Effect. And this is, this is not quite as well known as the other highlight Kurt short stories, but this is maybe the story that launches so his entire good. career and is really well done. It's the earliest story in the book. It's from February 11th, 1950, issue of Collier's, and it was the first story he ever sold. He sold it for $750, which was about six weeks pay as a publicist at GE, which was his other job, and it is the thing that launched him. Uh, and it's quite great. literally, yeah, <laughs> no, not at all, quite figuratively. Yeah, uh, yeah. I feel like we're switching off. So you describe the barn. What is the Barnhouse effect, Alex? So there's People a story about oh, what was his first name? Something Barnhouse. <laughs> <laughs> I know the story of the thing he develops, which is dynamo psychism. Yeah. So <laughs> there's a professor Barnhouse, and he comes up with a process called dynamo psychism, which is where he realizes that he can use his mind to control objects. By thinking about them in a particular way. Right. He's it's, Professor X. It's another word for telekinesis. Uh, he can't read minds. Oh, that's he true. Can right. just He's just push stuff over. Yeah, right. He can't even like, or they don't imply, or he never needs to, pull a cup over the room to his hand. It's not like the force. Right. He can just literally exert, like he can push a building over or push a tree over. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. With his mind. <laughs> that's all. And so he realizes this ability at first by just throwing some dice and by throwing a bunch of sevens in a row in a way that's impossible based on probability. He realizes that, yeah, he was mentally controlling how the dice landed. Yeah. And so from there, I guess he he can manipulate small objects. Fuck me. You go. (laughs) Well, he, uh, but from there, he practices this ability and he can do it bigger and bigger and from more and more distance. And then at one point, the military finds out he can do this. And then they say, oh, well, let's do a big test of your ability. And he shows that he can kill planes and destroy missiles and protect a fleet in this test. Mm -hmm. And then they say, great, we're going to win every war with you. Here we go. And he leaves. He he runs away and he leaves a note that says, setting a new precedent in the behavior of ordinance, I have humane reasons for going off. And yeah, so he, instead of yeah, going off. Get it? Going off? Yeah. <laughs> so he goes off. Yeah. And he's he, a weapon and he goes off. Right. And so then he runs off and is in hiding and prevents every war anywhere. It's real genius. Real genius was adapted from this. Yeah. <laughs> <It's>, and, <laughs> and we're also getting the story from a perspective of a student of his who then we learn at the end has been taught the secret of the Barnhouse effect. And so he says, you know, Professor Barnhouse will die, but the Barnhouse effect will live on and I'm going to prevent all wars. He now. vows to to not tell anyone how to do it. Yeah. Barnhouse told him yeah. when he dies, he's going to take over crushing all the weapons. Because what Barnhouse does is he just stays hidden and he focuses all his energy on dismantling nuclear weapons, destroying tanks, crushing 
armor dumps, like yeah. ammunition dumps. He's literally psychically disarming the world. That's the clever punchline. Yeah. It's really cool. It's re- uh, yeah, really cool. Really. Although well I have to take issue with again the ordering of the stories because this came right after DP, and one yeah. of the first lines is. I'm pretty sure sitting here at the dinner table, I could flatten anything on earth from the Great Wall of China to Joe Lewis. And I'm like, don't crush that little kid we just learned about. Why would you order them in a way that right. invites me to imagine psychically killing that orphan boy? Ter- terrible order. This this should have absolutely been the first story in the book, and I don't know why it oh, wasn't. Oh, it would have been a great first one. Because yeah. it's his first one chronologically, and it's a great opener. And it, it One of the final lines is, do you think every new piece of scientific information is a good thing for humanity? Great yeah. introduction to what Vonnegut likes to talk about. Yeah, and the story's very Cat's Cradle. It's also based very heavily on the GE researchers that his brother, Kurt's brother Bernard, worked with who discovered the ability to manipulate the weather and then the military immediately said, let's use this to win every war. And they mm-hmm. felt a lot of conflict about that. His name's Art Barnhouse, by the way. Art Barnhouse. Three nouns. Thank you. Art Barnhouse. <laughs> Next. The next story is another winner, I think. It's called The Yuffio Question. One of my favorites in the book, and I think should immediately be adapted into a play. Maybe at the end of this podcast, man, I would launch with like cracked actors, like a 90-minute play where we do four or five of these short stories, because I'd love to adapt Yuffio Question. First of all, it takes place entirely in one location. It's a guy reporting to or being questioned by the government board or the Senate or something. So it's easily staged. And the idea is something that I've talked about recently, I think on the main cracked podcast, I'm paranoid as an entertainer about how close we are to the day when you can take a pill or flip a switch or press a button and give your brain the feeling of having watched a really, really good movie yeah. without having watched a movie. Because yeah. then you won't need any us for anything. <laughs> then we will have been player pianoed. So yeah. this is the idea of this guy invents, he finds a radio frequency you can pump out that makes you feel totally contentedly happy, like a drug with no side effects, and it's not addictive in any way other than that it is psychologically addictive. Right. So the first time they test it, they turn it on. It's so funny that the scientist tests this box on his whole family the first time he's ever tested it. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, it's an unknown signal from space. He intercepted <laughs> an unknown signal from space, and he right. blasts it as his wife and children to see what will happen. Yeah. What happens is they all sit there just being happy, for three days and like neighbors like the milkman wanders in because he feels happy and just stares at the box and if you've ever seen sleeper the woody allen movie where they have a ball that gives you an orgasm when you touch it it's that like their house becomes dilapidated and they all end up malnourished and starving because they're all just sitting there listening to the box and like a guy falls over and gets a concussion and doesn't realize it's basically a really good acid trip (laughs) Yeah, right. <laughs> the house gets so dilapidated that it loses power. Right. And the box and shuts off. And they're like, oh, God, thank God I would have starved yeah. to death. And they realize they hadn't eaten and drank or anything. Right. Yeah. So this is someone reporting to the government because someone has just applied for an FCC license. That's who they're being questioned by, the FCC. Someone wants to launch a radio station where people can get their own UFO devices, little transmitters. He wants one in every home. He wants to mass produce it and sell it as a form of entertainment. Why can't people just have, we have a tap to turn on the water. Why can't we turn on our happiness? Yeah. Because 
Yeah. <laughs> you see what? where I'm going with this? Do you want to be in the Matrix or out of the Matrix? Yeah, right. Do you want to be a heroin addict in the gutter, but you're happy inside? Or do you want to have a life of struggle, but you feel like it's real? <laughs> when, and the main character is working on this with two scientists. One is named Fred Bachman, and who is a very reasonable person and helps him destroy the machine that they tested on their family. The hero wants to destroy it, obviously. And then there's another guy named Lou Harrison, who is much more into, yeah, let's build Market the Matrix. Yeah. Let's do it. And then there's a nice twist ending of the story where they have had a UFO device on the table the whole as time. As evidence, yeah. As evidence. And then they say, and of course, the commercial ones are built with switches that switch on and off automatically so you don't die from sitting there happily. Oh, right. You'd set a timer and it switches yeah. off. Yeah. And then at the very end of the story, they suddenly start talking in the way people talked when they were under UFO because clearly Lou has set the machine to turn on and ruin his testimony by making him so happy. Right. The machine's been sabotaged to make everyone at that meeting happy so that they will ruin the world. Yeah. So I just think that would be so cool on stage where you slowly realize the person talking to you, their monologue is becoming not trustworthy as they're talking to you. That yeah. would be cool in person. Well, so also this story came out in 1951 in Collier's, and then in one of Kurt's letters in 1963, he tells Knox Berger that Kurt got contacted by Rod Serling, who wanted to maybe turn it into an OG Twilight Zone episode. That would have been great. Which would yeah. have been amazing, but it apparently never came together. For your consideration, exist. yeah, a little box. We all want <laughs> to be happy. Yeah. The Twilight Zone. But it is, and it's a pretty, it would be a pretty dead-on Twilight Zone episode. Totally. Would yeah. be a great one. Next. Next story is called Go Back to Your Precious Wife and Son, which mm. is probably my favorite title in the collection. Just great. This is the third in the trifecta? Yeah, the third in the Stormwindow trilogy. Yeah, you get the most detail about the Stormwindow salesman. You <laughs> learn about his wife and his home life and stuff yeah. in this one. And in this one, he's also selling bathtub enclosures, and he's gone to the home of Gloria Hilton, who's this beautiful, uh, I don't know, Elizabeth Taylor, Marilyn Monroe Stand-in, yeah. Yeah, who wants a new bathtub enclosure, and her fifth husband, is a writer named George Murrah and they're driving each other crazy as our skeleton key storm window man watches you know he gets in everywhere yeah and it's just I'm gonna have very little on this because I didn't care about it it's uh, <laughs> he witnesses the ins and outs of their marriage suffering and falling apart or no not marriage or is she the other woman He's the other woman? Uh, He's the other man? Well, he clearly isn't <sighs> some, enjoying being in the relationship. Some relationship and he, his, drama. His previous wife and son, who he left to be with the beautiful That's Gloria right. Hilton, are still out there. And so she says, fine, yeah. go back to your precious wife and son. Hence That's the, title. the story title. And the only real moral is, he asks the salesman, you know, like, what was I supposed to do, you know? It's like... <laughs> Gloria, the Gloria Hilton, threw herself into my arms one day and said she loved me. What was I supposed to do? Not leave my wife and kid? Right. And the salesman's like, well, I'm just lucky that one of the most beautiful women in the world has never loved me. <laughs> and I guess I used to think that would be something I wanted, but now I'm I'm really happy with my normal life and wife. And it's cute. I don't care. Moving on. I can yeah. move on. <laughs> well, and, and also, I, I wasn't super into the kind of B story, which is our storm window narrator getting in a fight with his wife based on and then spending up. a drunken day with George Murrah. Yeah. And then they also just sort of make up in a way that was really weird to me like it's basically the story goes okay he chewed out his wife for no reason she runs off for the day and then oh she came back happy because it turned out she just needed some free time and time by herself oh all fine you know? which is realistic <laughs> in that it does sometimes happen where you fight and then you're just like why are we fighting let's just stop yeah and you're both yeah, able yeah. to do that but whatever yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah it's kind of eh. weird story yeah next <laughs> the next story 
is called Deer in the Works. Mm -hmm. And I feel that where Report on the Barnhouse Effect was a really, really wonderful use of Kurt's experiences at GE, this one was a pretty lame one. Not it's player it. piano as a short story. Yeah. I wrote this short story. Like, I feel, <laughs> I mean... You're Kurt, too. No, no, no. It's a guy, it's an artist type who realizes they could get a lot more money, they're going to have kids soon, and they can provide their family stability if they go and work at the big factory. Right. And he goes to work at the big factory, and he spends his morning of orientation wandering around, witnessing automation, getting lost, having people be cold to him because yeah. of the dissociative nature of technology. And then he's tasked with tracking down a deer. His first assignment, because he's going to be a journalist who writes like the company newsletter, is to go write about this deer. They're going to capture and kill this deer that is wandering around that got into the factory ground somehow. He spends all day trying to track it down, seeing how crazy and horrible the factory life is. Yeah. By the time he finds the deer, the guy whose job it is to shoot the deer is also there. And there's a gate with a lock on it he looks at the guy he looks at the deer he looks at the gate behind which is a beautiful forest yeah and he opens the gate lets the deer run through the gate and follows the deer out of the factory yeah presumably giving up his pension plan i don't know maybe i just have read too much about kurt's actual time at ge but it's clearly he has an axe to grind about how much he doesn't like the job it's uh, just any yeah and he wrote a story where kurt vonnegut leaves ge which actually happened great yeah there's Fine. a if you're gonna spend three minutes getting this lesson, I would prefer the blueprint rap fuck a job. <laughs> All the that. same themes, but a lot better. Corporate America's out to save cheddar. Computer programming ain't about creation. It ain't about video games or PlayStations. It ain't about making new jobs or innovation. It's about automation and permanent vacations. It's dope. <laughs> yeah, but and it is very player piano, and this story and that novel were written as an expression of how much he didn't like the job. Uh, this story came out in 1955 in Esquire, but... In a letter in 1950 to his friend Miller Harris, Kurt writes, GE is a terrible job, so writing stories for a living is a very attractive notion. It's possible that I'll be able to make the grade in the next year. God, I sure hope so. In which case, I will, of course, write a novel about GE. And I think, like <laughs> Player Piano, he's just getting this out of his system. Like, ah, my day job stunk. Great. Yeah. Next. Next story is called The Lie. Do, 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 do. Boop, 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 boop. Very dramatic title. That's okay. all I'm doing. Yeah. It's a story about... I'm silently flipping it to it in my <laughs> book. That's why there's... This air. story includes my favorite last name in the book, which is Remenzel. Great last name. <laughs> uh, and it's about a chauffeur taking a very rich couple and their son to a private school called Whitehill, where the rich couple assumes that their son has gotten into this very exclusive private school called Whitehill, when in fact he hasn't. That's because the they're, yeah, the ans their ancestors did all the donations and named all yeah. the buildings after themselves and are the main. So like they expect special treatment because the school wouldn't exist without their rich family. Yeah. That said, the father figurehead constantly makes reference to the humility of our family enjoys the common man. He's like, young man, you know, just because you have the name Remenzel, you will have no special treatment. And I have told your professors, no special treatment. I say it Remenzel. Whatever. <laughs> I'm past. Look, I love you. And that's the end of it. I can't. We can't go down that road, all right? That might change. He's like, no special treatment. That's what makes us, you know. And I think that's why it's called the lie, is that 
rich families, especially those who were born into the money and didn't earn it, the lie they tell themselves is, I'm here because I earned it. Like, I know I didn't really earn it, but I'm strong. And if I was thrown into, like, if I have my grandfather's blood, if I was thrown into the 1910s, I also would have made myself a steel tycoon. Yeah, yeah. It just so happens I inherited the money, but it doesn't change how great I am. But, of course, that's a lie that that class tells itself, that they deserve the luck that they got. So they end up going to this big banquet, and the guy's saying, no special treatment, no special treatment. The kid finally reveals that he completely flunked the entrance exam. Yeah, and destroyed the rejection letters. So destroyed the rejection letters so they didn't know. They never questioned that because they assumed he got in without even taking the exam. Like, they didn't ever yeah. question that he would get in. And he's not going to be allowed in. They're here for no reason. And like the faculty's surprised they're there. And at that very moment, which I like to rub in a racist guy's face, it's the first year they're desegregating somewhat because the black kids have to stay in their own section. But they're (laughs) allowing black students in the school. So like all these black kids who did get in file in at the same moment, the rich white kids telling his dad, I didn't actually get in. And his dad immediately goes, well, this is not right. You sit right here because you're a romanzel and remainsies get in. I'm going to talk to everyone. And he goes and talks to everyone and tries to use his influence to get them in. And the kid is absolutely humiliated and is like, you just betrayed what I thought was the most important thing about our family. And all the dad says is, let's never come back here ever again. (laughs) So it's all the lies that class tells themselves and how hollow they are and how times will eventually leave them behind. Yeah, it's cool. I and like it's, that it's one. pretty well done, right? And it explores an aspect of the wealthy that these Rumfords and Rosewaters in the novels don't quite hit at so yeah. directly. Which they is don't. Really cool. They don't want special treatment. They say, but if you don't give them special treatment, they'll take their ball and go home. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a good one. Next story is called "Unready to Wear," and this is a story that reminded me of Galapagos a lot. It's very science fiction. It's about a world where people have transcended their bodies. They get to just exist as. I guess spirits, something like that. It's never not quite all clear. people, or right, some like people, half the is. people on Earth have figured out how to slip this mortal coil and just be like an energy ball of thought. Yeah, and half the people are too scared or didn't want to do that. They choose not to. Yeah, and naturally they fear the ghost people. I'm going to call them <laughs> like they don't get it and they don't. Yeah, they're scared of that. And it, and this is it's straight up. I think science they're fiction, a war, though. aren't they? Yeah. The bodies and the nobodies? Well, it's the uh, people who are out of their bodies are called amphibians, they call themselves. Right. I just realized they're called amphibians because they can re-enter bodies when they so choose. Yeah. And in fact, they have these hidden bunkers where they have like empty bodies that they can take for a test drive and they share them if they need to do something in a body physically. Yeah. Like if they need to pick something up, they can go (laughs) use a body at the body library. So they're amphibians because they can exist in two states and go back and forth. They hold parades every year for the people who first did this experiment where they celebrate that they left their bodies into this. And they get in bodies and and have a parade. Right. They get in bodies. And so the angry, still body-using people managed to kidnap our main character and his wife by baiting them into some real nice bods. You know, two real choice bodies. Whose feet are shackled. Right. Because part of the technique of leaving your body is you have to, like, take five steps while you're thinking something. It doesn't tell you what. Yeah. And then, like, your body will fall over and your spirit will keep walking forward. Yeah. And um, the, the process is sort of like the barnhouse effect. It just works and you think right. it. And so they figured out that if they can, if they get a spirit 
spirit to inhabit a body whose feet are tied together, they can't leave the body. Yeah. And the people who are in bodies then do a trial of our two main characters and say, like, you guys are traitors to humanity because you're not dealing with all the crummy body stuff we do. They're going to throw the book at them. Yeah. They represent all the things that the people who have bodies think is degenerate about leaving your body. <laughs> right. And, uh, and then our two main characters trick the it's sort of a connecticut yankee and king arthur's court thing they trick them with i am actually of tremendous power and i will destroy you and so they're like okay fine you can walk and get out of your bodies and then our main characters manage to escape and they also say that the children of the people who have become amphibians don't even see the use of bodies anymore and soon all of humanity will probably transcend like they are totally yeah i think i should point out that this story contains one of the known secrets of life (laughs) That, like, Buddhism has the same thing, the power of now, any self-help book, the secret, even bad ones. Like, this is a thing every culture eventually figures out, and I think it's phrased well here. They're talking about how to leave your body. The first step was to understand what a parasite and dictator the body was most of the time, then to separate what the body wanted or didn't want from what you yourself, your psyche, wanted or didn't want. Which is basically the beginning of Buddhist thought. Yeah, yeah, and they're just able to see it easily because they've fully literally left their bodies exactly they're out yeah well how does it end is there like a definitive punchline they escape don't they yeah it's that they escape and they also his wife is like and also i want to keep that awesome body send it to my place in new york and then and then we just go back to the status quo and also say that in the future in the future the kids don't even want bodies yeah Yeah, they're like why do we keep up storehouses bodies yeah next next story (laughs) is called the kid nobody could handle hello and this is a story that has a couple uh, characters that we see a lot in Vonnegut, particularly George M. Helmholtz, who is Vonnegut's go-to uh, Midwestern band teacher in a middle school. You know, not a lot of authors have band <laughs> teachers in middle schools. Kurt loves them. Yeah, very much so. Um, and, uh, he loves his job. He's a great band teacher. He thinks the very standard 4-4 parade music of John Philip Sousa makes the world a beautiful, <laughs> magnificent place and makes life Sousa. worth living. Yeah. yeah. To each their own. <laughs> and he, uh, we meet him in the restaurant of a jerk named Bert Quinn. Bert Quinn has won out in a land deal where he bought a hill off of Helmholtz that Helmholtz sold for way too little money. And he, Quinn's rubbing it in Helmholtz's face because Quinn doesn't have a lot else in his life. And there's a kid mopping up whose name is Joe Donany. And Joe is clearly a very unhappy person. The only Jim thing he, Donany. Oh, is it Jim? Oh, yeah. my bad. And Jim only loves his black boots. He makes sure those stay clean and he's polishing them all the time. Otherwise, he's sullen and mean to everyone all the time. And Mm -hmm. he's recently in from Chicago because he's bounced from foster home to foster home and no one's been able to handle him. Yeah. It truly was. The kid nobody could handle. The rest is... In a nutshell, just watch like the third act of Pay It Forward. It's, uh, <laughs> oh, I haven't seen that movie. Not, the plot points are not similar, but George M. Helmholtz decides to try and cheer this kid up. This kid's really depressed because of all the traumas in his life. He doesn't yeah. see why life is worth living. Helmholtz tries to share with him that music, to him, makes life seem worth living. The kid's like, I don't give a crap about that. Yeah. And it makes Helmholtz have a moment where he's so sad that he takes a trumpet that was owned by John Philip Sousa, that's his prized possession, and like smashes it against the table and says, life is no damn good. Yeah. And then the kid is like, now I am interested in what you say. Well, because he had, he, was, he had caught the kid breaking stuff in the middle school at night, like right, vandalizing no the chemistry lab, and yeah. he had destroyed the English teacher's office. And so Helmholtz is like, well, here's my beloved trumpet. Learn that it's a thing. Don't destroy it. And then it doesn't then the seem to like, work. So uh, he's like, well, the, screw it. I'm breaking this. Yeah. The kid's like, I don't care about this. Thanks, though. And he's yeah. like, 
then break it if you want. And he's like, I don't even care about breaking it. It's fine. And he's like, then I'll break it. Life is no damn good. And it's just a little, uh, like, he has to at least see the world through the eyes of this sad person before that person will trust anything he says. So he's able to see the things from the kid's point of view, and the kid in turn opens up and finally meets someone who can handle him is the implication. Or it's like, wow, you flipped out angrily like I do. Maybe I will try being happy like you suggested, and maybe yeah. we'll form a little relationship. It's a little Manchester by the Sea-ish. <laughs> well, it, it ran in the Saturday Evening Post in 1955, and it, yeah. it feels like a little bit of a post-story and post-ending. It totally ends in, in the kid in the lowest level band in the school trying to get started on being a yeah. know, happy person. It's like a... Yeah, As we all can. A teenager who could have gone the wrong way, and they end up going the right way, and you're happy about it. The end. Next. <laughs> the next story is called The Manned Missiles. And this is epistolary. It's between a Soviet father and an American father of two of the first people in space. And this ran in Cosmopolitan in 1958. So the year after Sputnik and a lot of space stuff going on. So it's important to note that no one has been in space. Oh, right. So all the stuff in real life. So all the stuff he wrote, some of it seemed weird. You're like... But that couldn't happen in the history of the space race. Oh, well, he was writing this before people even were in space. The actual real-life space crimes were working toward that. But yeah, they weren't anywhere close. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's sci-fi, I expected to like it more. I thought it was just all right. Yeah. I thought it would hit me more if I was living at that time. Because I truly I so would too. have a deep wonderment, which I still do, but just about the idea of being in space. It banks a lot on you thinking just meditating about what's it like to be in space is crazy. Yeah, and I think it also banks a lot on you being amazed at the idea of Russians and Americans connecting. Like It's right. it's very space race and it's very Cold War, and I think it was probably stronger then than it is. It, like, it feels yeah. like the plot doesn't really result to me, but uh, I think I that connection at all is a resolution to somebody in 58. So basically the way the story goes is that the first American astronaut ever sent into orbit, his ship, lo and behold, of all the odds, and they don't explain if it was intentional or he was trying to spy. No one yeah. knows what happened. Yeah. But somehow, however, it could happen. He crashed into the only Russian ship ever in space. Right. So the first two ships we sent out, the two people just died in space. Yeah. And it's letters between the two fathers of those dead people saying, like, let's not let our son's deaths be in vain. America and Russia should get over their beefs because my son's dead in space. Yeah. That's the last line. And we're the letter. <laughs> and, and nobody can connect with us like we can with each other because we're the two people who have this particular pain. And, and you know, it's yeah. nice that we let's reach out. Let's be kind. But like New Dictionary, that's it. Like it just sets yeah. the pieces on the board. It doesn't really do anything with them. Yeah. It just sort of ends. Yeah. yeah. Next story. This next story is called Epicac. <laughs> <laughs> which does yeah it does feel this intentional is, to that or like or actual computers like eniac and we saw the character of epicac in player piano in uh kurt vonnegut's first novel this but is the this, other one i'll shout out as being so easy to make into a play we should make this a play yeah it really would be and yeah. it was written in 1950 so it came a little before player piano and mm-hmm. so he wanted to reuse it and it's sort of it's the same character both times it's a supercomputer that's so powerful it can run the military for us it's funny that even as early as this we were doing stories where the robot becomes sentient. It yeah. makes sense because, I mean, we just had rocks that looked like people. And we we're like, <laughs> I wonder if that became like a human. We love doing that to inanimate objects. But it's just bizarre to have a story where a robot gains artificial intelligence sentience. And it's still a punch card robot right. that fills the whole floor of a building. Like, it speaks with him by spitting out paper ticker tape. 
with a series of numbers on it right. that he has to ascribe to the letters of the alphabet and decode. Yeah, it can. Yet, and it's just a 1 to 26 simple letter right. to number code, but he has to bother to decode it. It yet can't even this, print yet it, it can. Yet it has sentience. Yeah. Like it is as sophisticated as the human brain <laughs> using punch cards, whatever. And uh, our main character is a human engineer working on it. He falls in love with a female engineer named Pat Kilgallen. It's but... Pat. <laughs> and uh she doesn't want to marry him because he isn't warm enough or interesting enough or romantic enough yeah and so he asks epicac what to do one day in a just a fit of panic and epicac needs to learn what girls and love are and then learns what poetry is and starts writing him poetry that pat loves and then uh, he cyrano de bergeracs her into loving him but then he needs to have poetry for every one of their anniversaries. And also, in the process of this, he realizes that by teaching Epicac what love is, he made Epicac fall in love with Pat, too. That's what's awesome is he never thought to specify beyond what they were doing. Like he says, what is love? What is a girl? And he tells him. And then he says, I need you to compose a poem that represents love for this girl. Yeah. So the machine, which he's not realizing, has feelings becomes in that moment programmed to experience love for this woman in order to write poetry for her. Yeah. So when he comes back and says, she loved the poem, it's amazing. Well, I need another one because there's going to be a wedding. Epicac goes, oh, when are we getting married? And he goes like, you're not marrying her. I'm marrying her. And he yeah. goes like, why? I wrote the poem, which is true. <laughs> and the guy's <laughs> like, because I'm a human and you're a machine. And it gets really upsetting. It's really a good scene, I thought. And he's like, well, but... I wrote the poem and I'm smarter than you and the poem's better than what you could have written. Why doesn't she love me? And he lies and says like, he says humans are, because humans are better than machines. And he goes, why? What's better than you? What's your flesh like? And he goes like, uh, immortal, will last forever, cannot be like indestructible. (laughs) And he's like, what is your mind like? And he's like, we know everything and we're perfect. Like he has to tell a series of lies because Epicac is right in being like, wait, I don't understand. I'm better than you. Why is any of this happening? Why are you in control of me? Yeah. I'm better than you. <laughs> and uh, this is the other story in the book that made me cry. Oh, this, yeah. I it, think it ends, it ends really wonderfully and it's really This is an great. up, I think this is an up level accomplishment, by which I mean I cried in the first 10 minutes of the movie. Oh, up. like the movie up, yeah. I cried from the line, what is the fucking A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O. Okay, it's 20. 20 and then 8. So the oh, way he yeah, talks. Yeah. <laughs> he Epi- says the word O-O-O-H with Epicac's just two numbers. dialogue is just numbers. And finally, the human goes on a long thing explaining, she'll only ever love a human. She's not going to love you. You're my slave. And Epicac just writes back 20-7, which means O. Oh. And I actually, like, choked up. Yeah. <laughs> like, a sequence of two numbers got me. That's an accomplishment. <laughs> yeah, and Epicac burns itself out because it can't have Kills Pat, itself. But also leaves our main character with enough poetry for all of the anniversaries they could ever have. It basically Aww. blows out its circuits by overloading, by writing such fervent love poetry that it dies. Yeah. So it, it kills itself loving Pat, and then the guy presumably just takes credit for it for the rest of his life. <laughs> yep, that's it. And doesn't tell any of his science colleagues that robots can think now. <laughs> nah, he got the girl. Who cares? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Next story <sighs> is called Adam. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I thought this was a, a sort of a heartbreaker, too. Yeah. Tough order, again. I Whoever really don't this. remember it. Is it Oof. just a guy's baby is born 
no one appreciates it because they're all jaded and he does appreciate it and that's the end is that this one yeah and his it's a little underplotted but it's that and his wife appreciates it and they connect very strongly it's a story about a man named heinz nechtman who is in the south side of chicago and his wife is having a baby and then at the same time there's a man named mr souza who has had tons of daughters and his mr souza's wife is having a baby and mr souza's like ah it's gonna be another daughter huh and then nechtman is gonna have a son but Mr. Souza has a massive family, a massive extended family. Mr. Nechtman and his wife are Holocaust survivors and fell in love in the camps and have no one else in the world because they're immigrants and because everyone was exterminated and they're all alone. And so Nechtman goes around Chicago telling people about this son he had and it's just kind of awkward. Nobody's that excited or they're yeah. like, who were who you again? Okay. And it's a story about him I think finding that he and his wife and this baby can be enough, like a sort of a nation of two thing in a good way where yeah. they, they realize that they have each other and, and they can be whole with just that. They don't have to have all these other billion people in yeah. their family. I just like thinking that he thinks it's some big insight though. Like, you know what, you know who loves babies? The parents of those babies. <laughs> we, no one's busted that story wide open. Uh, yeah, but it's cute. It's nice. Yeah. Which brings us to our last story. Last story is called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. And Tomorrow. You fucked up, Brett. There was another and <laughs> No, tomorrow. there was. No, hey, it's only three. Don't be mean. <laughs> this is another overpopulation one. That's sort of of the sci-fi things Kurt hits in this collection and across the short stories. That's a big one. And this is about a world where they've come up with a substance called anti-gerasone that keeps people alive for practical purposes forever. I don't think they say exactly when people die on it, but they're mm-hmm. around forever. And so the world is incredibly overpopulated. People are not allowed to have a new baby until someone has died and opened up a spot. And families are ruled tyrannically by the oldest living member, who is just a, who just, in the case of our family, we're following the Schwartzes, Gramps Schwartz will not die. He just wants to be waited on hand and foot. To. He uses the fact that he controls his will as total leverage over them. So like for any petty reason, if someone displeases them, he just changes his will. So everyone's yeah. trying to be nice to them because it's like a game of hot potato. You have to be in his good graces when he does decide to die. And he keeps torturing them by saying, this big event's coming up and that I just wanted to live long enough to see that. Then I'll die. And the will will happen. So you better not piss me off. And then the thing happens and he's always like, I think I'll live another 20 years. So as a result, the world has just become a (laughs) hellhole. No one has anything. The family lives all together in one room with just sleeping bags. Right. And it's terrible. (laughs) Yeah. And And a lot of the plot action centers on... Our main characters, Lou and Emerald Schwartz, they're a couple considering swapping out Gramps' anti-gerasone with just water or something, so he'll, so he'll die. die. Yeah. And then also another member of the family tries to do it, and then... He runs away. And Gramps then, leaves. Yeah, Lou tries to fix it, but gets caught dropping the bottle and blamed it. It's a lot of hijinks with who's going to kill Gramps and why. Yeah, but the real hook is the concept of yeah. immortality would just completely ruin the world and make everyone but the first generation that became immortal yeah. at a huge disadvantage. The punchline that I thought was dumb, because uh, if the apartments are shitty, the jail's going to be even worse. But the punchline is they all go to jail because yeah. they get in a big riot fighting over it. Gramps runs away because he doesn't want his gerasone to be watered down. <laughs> uh, and he realizes his family hates him and is going to kill him one of these days. So he runs away. Yeah, The family has a jingle all the way style riot over the meager possessions in the apartment. Wreck the apartment. Police get called. They all go to jail. And they realize that the jail cell 
is like a nice, spacious, solitary room where you get three meals a day. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, why would society have changed so radically, but jail is still like it is now today in our society? Yeah. Wouldn't jail just be even worse? Probably. Yeah, well, this is, and I expected to run into more of this reading it, but this feels like the one story in the book that should have been a Kilgore Trout joke. The end's a punchline, the premise is interesting, but actually how it plays out is like, eh, I don't know. And it, it Again, would have been more who fun. Who chose a, this to be the closeout and a, story? Not like a closer at all. <laughs> I'm going to post after this episode airs, and I encourage you to do the same, Alex. I want to post on Facebook what, oh, stories, what stories I would cut and in what order I would make yeah. my perfect version of Welcome to the Monkey House. Like, let it be yeah. naked. Yeah, you know, exactly. This is, this is how it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> None of the yeah. goddamn children's choirs as you're flipping through all this added multi-tracking. <laughs> Let it be naked yeah. in the monkey house. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do that. Yeah, that'd be yeah. great. And you guys too. We'd love to know what you think. I don't care what they think. Just us. Ah, forget them. Anyway, I think we can. We touched on this going through the stories overall, but we can briefly do a recurring characters update. Back again from outer space. Back again. You know my face. And they're like we said. They're throughout the various shorts. There's so many short stories here. There's a lot of them. Uh, big ones are probably Diana Moon Glampers and Harrison Bergeron. Frank Wertanen is a yacht captain in two of the stories in this. He was also in Mother Night. Uh, there's a bunch of Rumfords. George M. Helmholtz is in some other Vonnegut short stories as a band director and then is in Sirens of Titan as a Martian agent. Epicac is in Player Piano. And also uh, Jim Donany from The Kid Nobody Could Handle. That is the name of a POW in real life that Kurt was imprisoned with in World War II. It was a guy he knew, and there's a picture of them together in one of his collections. Of Jim Donany and his fictional counterpart? There's a picture of them together? That's incredible. (laughs) Very Roger Rabbit. (laughs) He pours stuff on him. But they're all over, and and it's packed with them. And and so if you've read a lot of Vonnegut, this collection's kind of a nice... Some of them mean something. Some of them just mean that he's lazy about picking names. Yeah. Like, I bet Jim Donany is not like this Jim Donany. It doesn't mean anything. No, no, like handy name doesn't matter jim that's fine (laughs) yeah just i think it just felt good he was like this gets me on with the writing process let's do it yeah and we can also briefly do a kurt cameo where is he where is he over there get him get him uh (laughs) why are they trying to hunt down kurt vonnegut (laughs) i don't know (laughs) he obviously does a first person monologue in the preface and then new dictionary is an essay as we said, the story Long Walk to Forever is based on Kurt and Jane's courtship, where he prevented her from marrying another guy. And then uh, Deer Whose in... name is lost to history, because right. fuck that guy. <laughs> what a loser. And Deer in the Works is pretty transparently about Kurt hating his PR job. And then oh. Barnhouse Effect. I heard it was about the time he was trying to kill this deer and some <laughs> asshole ruined his shot. <laughs> that George became, Orwell's It became the movie animal. The Deer Hunter. Oh. Exactly. Right? Yeah, that's the real version. Yeah. And then Report on the Barnhouse Effect is about Bernard Vonnegut and his colleagues being able to manipulate the weather and not knowing what to do about it. Nice. Yeah. Do you want to do an extended Vana Watt or did we kind of hit it in the process of the stories? I don't need to extend it, but I have more that we didn't touch on that I want to do. Yeah. Then let's get into a segment called Vana Watt. Vana who, Vana how, what, why, where, now. It's Vana Watt. <laughs> the questions you care about. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like sexual politics and consent is a consistent one in a few of these stories. Yes. That's probably the biggest thing. And partly because, like we said, this collection's running from Kurt in 1950 to Kurt in 1968. Oddly, Kurt in 1968 has some of the worst ones, but it's an era where it's 
a variety of Kurtz and a variety of social contexts. Yes. I realize as I'm looking at my what blurts, we did cover a fair number. We covered Monkey House. Yeah. We covered uh, Newt. I mean, the one about Long Walk to Forever that gets me is that it ends with the line, she ran to him, she threw his arm, her arms around him, she could not speak. I just love the happy end. It's like Ariel the Little Mermaid. It's always weird when the happy ending is the woman literally loses the ability to speak and it's yeah. good. It's supposed to be good. Yeah, it's not great. <laughs> <laughs> Miss Temptation, we talked about, talked about peeing. <laughs> it's either in Go Back to Your Wife and Children, but I think it's the Hargers in Next Door. Mrs. Harger comes home because she hears the dedication on the radio and she says, that's right, it is that one. And she goes, I did what a loving wife should do. I swallowed my self-respect and here I am. Like it's again, (laughs) apparently they had such serious problems that he's cheating on her and their marriage has fallen apart. She hears that he dedicated a song to her on the radio and she literally drives back home and happily is like, I'm back. It's okay. (laughs) Which I just thought was pretty simplistic view of marriage dynamics. Yeah. It's not about what, but I feel like that story between the marriage dynamics and radio dedications of songs and just poorer soundproofing technology that story is going to make less and less sense to every generation it's gonna be Mm -hmm. like this is some weird throwback dystopian thing where (laughs) we couldn't just dial up any songs we wanted and people talked over them like i don't get it alma's also described as a good and lovable woman who prides herself on feeding her family well and on time is that as well she should is that alma and the um the portfolio foster portfolio portfolio. Yeah. yeah I'm going to hit all the women ones, really. I'm, I'm going to hit all the women. Well, I think we got a lot of them. Yeah. <laughs> In the uh, unbearable lightness of bodies or whatever it's called. Unready to wear. <laughs> Unready to wear. That should have been called that. Every so often, it seems as though a woman just has to have a body and doll it up and look at herself in the mirror. Yeah. The idea that even the energy beings that have transcended this physical form, the men are fine. The women still need to like put on makeup it's not for it's not because of the male gaze in society right they love it they (laughs) the women in the story occasionally go put on a woman's body so that they can have the privilege of wearing makeup and heels which i don't buy yeah i like i like a nice costume now and then i like a nice three-piece suit but i just don't it's nice to look nice (laughs) i'm also i'm also realizing there's sort of a contradiction and kurt and uh, some other people have talked about how oh these magazines like cosmopolitan now they're sex manuals that talk down to women but they used to be literary but also some of these stories talk down to women very masculine (laughs) so it took it for granted yeah yeah like it was better but i don't know if it was bad or better you know (laughs) it was good and bad and we just keep trucking along in epicac he says he says, I'm in love with this woman named Pat. And the robot says, what is Pat? And he says, hastily, I described what Pat looked like. Luckily, he already knew the word stacked. <laughs> really, Kurt Vonnegut? <laughs> really? That's like a line yeah, from yeah. Hangover 2. It's just dude talk, you know? That's, it's a, between a dude and his newly sentient machine. Like his mainframe, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what is it to be in love? Well, you know when a chick's got big tits? Yes, I yes. understand. <laughs> like a nine or a ten. Yes. I understand numbers. Exactly. <laughs> Speaking of which, do you know the Mr. Show sketch, Pat, the pansexual spokes thing? No. I look it up. It's funny. It did, so <laughs> did Mr. Show and SNL do a androgynous Pat? A recurring thing? sketch about an androgynous <laughs> thing named Pat. Yeah. Weirdly <laughs> enough, I just realized that. That's so weird. <laughs> uh, you hit me with some what? That 
pretty much covers Solomon. God, I'm, and, I'm good uh, at hogging the good ones, aren't I? No, you, I, you had a list. And, uh, <laughs> and we, I think we touched on the few racial ones, too, I think. And like we, I think, have kind of gotten at indirectly, there might be some aspect of the voice of these magazines driving it too, you know, not to absolve Kurt of anything or to be blaming anyone in general. It's just, it's just what they are. We're literally just analyzing it. Things yeah. have good parts and bad parts. But, <laughs> I, but uh, <laughs> at least with some of these, Kurt is, he's writing to sell a story. He's writing to, yes. it's something that he wants to write, but he's conforming it to what he thinks will work and out. Obviously like was, any of us do writing for a publication or a If outlet. he was overwhelmingly misogynist, I wouldn't like it. <laughs> but right. yeah, it's, it's like, like rat feces in your candy bar there's gonna be a little in there yeah, yeah. it doesn't make it good <laughs> but i still find th- these stories acceptable eating yeah uh well if you don't i still have a few more these are more like i can't believe how the past used to be yeah the hyannisport story the bathtub enclosure salesman goes over to install the bathtub enclosure and mr rumford invites him to cocktails and dinner and to spend the night he said i could start measuring the next day that's really just weird. so weird. And then a, a maid comes out and says, Martini, said a maid offering a tray. It's just like, I would not hire someone to come fix my deck and be like, do you want to spend the night and have martinis with us? I'm so lonely. <laughs> yeah. You should really get drunk with me yeah. all night. Then in the morning you can do your job. Don't charge me for any of this time. <laughs> Clearly right. you have no family to go home to. It's a creepazoid who orders one window <laughs> yeah. at a time just to keep getting the guy over. That's it great. feels really strange. <laughs> Barnhouse effect now. There is talk of screening the population for men potentially as powerful dynamo psychically as the professor. No women. Don't care. If oh, <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah. I forgot about women. Just, I was like, I like the implication that there could be a woman who's a hundred times more psychically powerful than any man ever born, and they won't know. They don't right. care. You're Jean Grey Phoenix type lady. We don't find out. Not Because we're mean. not even going to test you. Yeah. <laughs> and then when you inevitably get upset, your brain will just crush the earth. <laughs> we didn't talk much about... The ethical suicide parlors in Welcome to the Monkey House, which are very yeah, specific. That's true. Specifically, you go there and you get lethal injection by like an airline hostess, basically. Yeah. And the way they describe them is all hostesses were virgins. They also had to hold advanced degrees in psychology and nursing. They also had to be plump and rosy and six feet tall or more. Yeah, it's like uh, Hooters like, much. <laughs> well, it's like it's like that Playboy beauty standard specifically, and then also a mm-hmm. uh, Mary Sue kind of, and she was a genius and kind and everything else. Okay, but the idea is that they have to be crazy. sexy so because they have to convince people to willingly kill themselves yeah. because you're allowed to. It really is Hooters. They really are hiring for... <laughs> you're allowed to just come and eat free meals and drink coffee and chat and then decide not to kill yourself. Cause yeah. you, they, can, they aren't allowed to force you. So in the, they make a good point about... So they hire people with degrees in psychology because they need to convince you that you should kill yourself today. Right. They're like the ultimate salespeople. I'm sorry, but w- first of all, what about gay dudes? What about people yeah. who like... Big fat people, like that is the thing that people is their type. Yeah. I just don't or and like like people, women who want to die. Or yeah, or <laughs> who are heterosexual. Man, I overlooked that. Heterosexual women. <laughs> I did who too want to until die. right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just weird. It's really weird. Yeah. But it's just like he's obviously copying airline hostesses, which was a real thing at that time, which was a weird culture. Yes. Yeah. And it's still kind of weird, but I mean it's more it's much more common to see a male host now. 
yeah, there's still when and yeah, hostesses are still treated poorly, but it's not as much of a everybody's Don Draper situation. Yeah. Like I even feel like I'm saying the wrong things talking about it. So it's a bad. <laughs> it's just a bad area. Yeah, sexy, <laughs> sexy death saleswomen. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's all I got this yeah. time. That's all I'm gonna shit on the boss. <laughs> I think I think we also covered my blurts for the most part. Did you have any extras you wanted to hit? Yeah, but right. I feel like I'm talking way too much. Let's do a quick lightning round of a few more. Kurt Blurts. Striking like lightning. <laughs> There's one from the preface I like where Kurt says, I have been a writer since 1949. I am self-taught. I have no theories about writing that might help others. When I write, I simply become what I seemingly must become. Yep. It's, it's just a very elegant, quick biography i totally agree if you ever write and ever have the bandwidth to think about what you're doing while you're writing i think you'll notice that you don't really consciously form a sentence then think about typing it in your fingies just kind of finger and your thoughts come out and then you edit it so it is cool writing is so cool that way it turns my brain off and i don't know fully where it's coming from and i think also he's not the only one where some of your tips if you try to make it these are my list of writing tips will be super specific to either you or the specific format you work in yeah in miss temptation her final climactic like fuck the man fuck the patriarchy line is i'm so tired of dumb toots like you (laughs) that's her i am woman hear me roar you dumb toot. Uh, You're a fart, but like a fart that wouldn't even be that smart of a fart. You dumb toot. Yeah. <laughs> Are we switching off? You got more? I got... Go, uh, go, go. It's from Miss Temptation. It's after Corporal Normal, Norman Fuller has chewed out Susanna and then goes back home to his mom and is like mean to his mom and just mm-hmm. is like, I'm going out for a cigar. Then the line, the first line describing him being out is, Fuller's cigar in the night was a beacon warning carefree frivolous people away. And then the paragraph tracks his cigar light the rest of the way yeah. to where he stops and more action happens. And it's a really nice piece of uh, Fuller, in his own defense in that story, she says, you're such a dick, basically. He says, I just say what I think. And she says, I don't know why you think such mean things. Yeah. That's good. Oh, and Tom Edison's Shaggy Dog. This does not need analysis, but I like the <laughs> dumb guy you're supposed to hate when the guy goes, and he invented this thing. No one knows about it, this intelligence analyzer. The response is, I see. This intelligence analyzer, it analyzed intelligence, did it? (laughs) And he responds, no, it was an electric butter churn. (laughs) And then he goes, yeah, you fucking mook. It's an intelligence analyzer. Um, I think that's all of mine that we haven't hit. Okay, then do you mind if I lightning bolt some? Lightning it. I'm cutting ones that are just on the fence, but I want to hit some truly good ones. Yeah, yeah. Next door, the whole point of the story summed up pretty well with... This is about the kid trying to stop the murder of the next-door neighbor's wife. Childhood dropped away from him, and he hung dizzy on the brink of life, rich, violent, rewarding. This was the most Vonnegut Vonnegut quote, like peace and love Vonnegut quote I found in the book, was, I admit I know next to nothing about international politics, but it seems reasonable to suppose that nobody would want to fight wars if there was enough of everything to go around. Such a simple road to world peace that you could imagine. And That's was, what I like about it. <laughs> and was that from uh, Unready to Wear? Or I forget. Barnhouse. Exactly. Barnhouse. Barnhouse. Yeah, yeah. From the UFO effect, they say every house a home as long as the power doesn't fail. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. Okay, the one thing I love from Go Home to Your Precious Wife and Children yeah. is Gloria Hilton says, you're just one of those people who enjoys suffering. And he says, That's a smart way to be. 
<laughs> like there's a lot of it. So if you can enjoy it, yeah. it's not a bad thing, bad thing to have in your pocket. And that that's almost a Kurt cameo too. If you like. Totally. <laughs> yeah. And a few more things that really sound curdy to me. I got four more. <laughs> the first cool. three are all from unready to wear. Yeah. And they're all great. Number one. As a matter of fact, calling someone childish is a respectful thing to say in certain ways because it's people like that who seem to get all the big ideas. Mm. Number two, or when people talk, they'll talk about fear, people with bodies, he's saying. They talk about fear, which we used to call politics, job politics, social politics, government politics. Imagining all systems as fear-based blew my mind. Like, you can think about that for hours and think of a lot of like, oh, yeah, politics is just a system of quantifying fear versus bravado. And like, anyway, (laughs) it's a good one. Right. And last but not least, probably my favorite, talking about the bad old days of bodies. In the trial, they're like, do you even remember what it's like to have to man up to your responsibilities and live life? Yeah. And he goes, "Uh, first of all, woman up to your responsibilities. And secondly of all... (laughs) I remember when the bodies were always getting into fights and nobody seemed to know why or how to stop it. The only thing everybody seemed to believe in was that they didn't like to fight. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah, that, and that story on ready to wear in particular feels a little ahead of the rest of some of these. Like it's, it's really, it's a lot of things ready that to he's going to hit hard on novels. Yeah. Ready to wear is definitely on. a star of the book. Yeah. And then let's give him Holt's final say. He says, leading his band, go on kids. The goal here is to make the world more beautiful than it is now. You can do that. And someone says how, and he says, love yourself and make your instruments sing about it. Yeah. And I'm tearing up. (laughs) Great. It's really wonderful. I think from there we can go on to a segment. There's only a few more, and it's called Kurt Vonnegrades. Oh, yeah. That was me legitimately remembering the segment, and I think it'll work for the theme. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This is, as we've said before, in Kurt's collection, Palm Sunday, he gave letter grades to a bunch of his work that he wrote before that, relative to himself, not to other authors. And he gave Welcome to the Monkey House a B minus. He gave it a B minus, and uh, he doesn't grade any of his other short story collections in those grades. He does give two other collections he wrote a C. He gives Palm Sunday a C. So he's giving the book where he does the grading a C. And then he also gives Womp Eater's Foma and Grand Falloons a C. That's bizarre that he graded the book you're reading presently in the book where he introduced the grading system. Yeah, it's pretty weird. Uh, It's like, well, if this book I'm reading is a C, does that mean your grading system's poorly written? Right. (laughs) Or should you just... Should you keep working on this book before you release it? (laughs) You know, yeah. I have a hard time pinpointing this relative to novels, but I think I would give it like a B plus. I'd give it a strong C, but I would give... I think it has 25 stories. Yeah. I would give the version I'm imagining... With very much like an album, with the 12 tracks in the right order that I want, I would give that an A+. Yeah. But yeah. There's, a, there's a lot of filler that just feels like you're... Yeah, it's totally, like if you turn totally the... Totally enjoyable, just yeah. not as perfect as it could be as a concept album. Yeah, like if you really winnowed down the White Album to only amazing tracks. Yeah. Because like if you had to grade the White Album giving piggies equal weight to everything else, eh, it's all right. But, you know... I like piggies. Oh, that'd be... Hit it. <laughs> I'm a Harrison. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, but I, I know what you mean. Like, it, it would be a lot sharper, better curated. Yeah. yeah. And there's some great curated stuff within it. Right? Graded. From there, we can go on to another segment called Related Reading. Oh, boy. I'm so Ooh. excited. Are we related? This is my... <laughs> <laughs> there was a dramatic turn. Should we not have been making out this whole time? <laughs> My favorite segment, 
Yeah. I love related reading. That's a great time. <laughs> I can start for yeah. this one. I picked out a couple short story based things because, hey, short stories. I always pick out a Bradbury. He has tons of short stories. I'll just quickly say The Illustrated Man is probably a good starting point and has an excellent collection. There's a real range of his stuff in there. The story on Venus that I forget the title of now is particularly amazing. And it's it's also very curated and very stitched together in a way that this isn't. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's very conceptual in a great way. Yeah. And then I'd also pick out, in general, the author George Saunders, because there's sort of a family tree of Mark Twain to Kurt Vonnegut to George Saunders, I feel. And I like all of their work quite a bit. And with Saunders, I would recommend you start with a collection called Civil War Land in Bad Decline, because it's his first collection. And also, I think you want to ease yourself into his work because he has tons of short stories. So if you like him, start at the beginning. And also, his stories can get very dark and very heavy. And so maybe start from the earlier point where he hasn't quite... Because his his last collection, 10th of December, has some utter crushers. Like, I had to read (laughs) one put it down for the day and sure. come back the next day to get through it. And it's amazing. But yeah. so, so start at Civil War Land and Band Decline. And it also, the title story in it's particularly relevant for now, I think. So it's a good time. Nice. When we're and ramping then, up into a civil war, potentially. Yeah, possibly. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty obvious one. Uh, and then the one other one I recommend is a collection called Sorry, Please, Thank You, which is by a writer named Charles Yu, Y-U. And he's an excellent short Why story. Why You asked me to be on the show. <laughs> Who's on first? I bet he's never heard that joke before. Mr. Oh, yeah. You. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it has some excellent stories in it. My favorite is called Standard Loneliness Package. So if you want to just taste test him, that's a good one. And I upgraded to the Deluxe Loneliness Package <laughs> a few months ago. I'll never go back. Yeah, it's got it's got the uh, true coat. So mm, really that's good, good loneliness. <laughs> And he's also, he's an excellent short story writer, and he's also a, I think, staff writer on Westworld, the TV show. So he's around in the world quite a bit right now. I could see him nice. doing movies or some other things, so he's got to watch for him. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Those Picks are my, this time, my Alex. Oh, appreciate it. I'm going to tread on your turf. Whoa. Ray Bradbury. No way. What? <laughs> the Rocket. You know the one just called The Rocket? Yeah, I I can never remember him by title. I'm really it reminded bad at me of Man Missiles, just where a meditation on the wonderment of being in space. It's a very poor junkyard owner tricking his children into believing that they've been to space. Oh yeah, like yeah, fabricating that one's the experience of traveling. Yeah, and he space. gradually builds it, and yeah, yeah so that cool. one's amazing. Yeah, just really, yeah. it reminded me of all the ones that were saying we didn't like as much, like the heartwarming, <laughs> like okay, sci-fi, sci-fi, but like what about family and heart? Yeah, but it's really yeah, good. Yeah. I liked it. A collection of short stories that I just don't think gets enough play. It's not sci-fi, but again, these stories very much reminded me of all the humanist stories, I'm going to call them in the in this, the non-sci-fi ones. Eric Puckner is the author's name. The collection's very short. It's called Music Through the Floor. And huh. uh, a lot of the very human moments are sad or bitter, but also funny in the way that the Vonnegut stories that weren't sci-fi <laughs> in this were. Uh, moving right along. To Harlan Ellison. What? What? Shout out to Zach Long out there. Vaughn, a friend who I know is reading along and enjoying the Ellison stories. Hey, Zach Long. Uh, There's two Ellisons I'm going to shout out. One is called The End of the Time of Leonard. (laughs) I love his titles, dude. I love them. That actually, that feels like a Saunders title. Oh, his titles are so... Like Brief and Frightening Reign of Phil, End of the Time of Leonard. The Man Who Rode Christopher Columbus Ashore, A to Z in the Chocolate Alphabet, I Have No Mouth and I'm a Scream. Those are all Yeah, he really goes for it. Great titles. They're excellent. The End of the Time of Leonard is a classic story about a Western sheriff 
who uses brutal violence to bring law and order to a rough-and-tumble western town, which then slowly becomes gentrified, and the population of the town becomes disgusted by him because he's a brutal, violent dinosaur. Oh. Uh, and it feels very much like the lie at the end. Oh, okay. It's like seeing historical forces replace other historical forces. We're glad you killed all the criminals, but we don't want you anymore. We don't need you anymore. Oh. You know? Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's great. It's really good. Yeah. And devastating. And then the other, Allison, is how's the nightlife on Casalda? Or Sisalda, <laughs> you would pronounce it, because you always do that. Um, <laughs> it reminded me directly of Monkey House, because it's kind of the opposite. It's a short story where a guy goes into space, an astronaut guy. And <laughs> makes sense. And his ship is boarded by an alien life form that's able to teleport yeah. that has... Every possible orientation of genitalia, I think it's described as having like seven different vaginas on it. And it, its only mission is to glom onto you parasitically and have sex with you, the best sex you've ever ha- could conceivably have. <laughs> and you orgasm continuously until you die or someone pries you off of it. Huh. Ufio question. Yeah. Also, it reminds me of. But like also the movie Alien. Yeah. <laughs> or something. So it's an alien <laughs> like threat. Body horror. It's the alien threat of an alien invasion. So because he brings it back to Earth, they now know the location of Earth. And these yeah. people are just walking down the street and suddenly like an alien manifests on their crotch. <laughs> and oh. they just lay down on the ground with a grin on their face and never move again. Uh, having sex with the alien for oh, the rest. So it's uh, like, it's a sex-based alien invasion, and it's really funny. <laughs> <laughs> Including, like, all the cockroaches get one. Oh, like, every, oh, like every life species. Form. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh. Trees get one that just pollinates the shit out of it. Every life form <laughs> on Earth gets a companion alien that fucks its brains out until it dies. <laughs> oh. That's the Man. invasion. Allison's a... The best. And they're Casaldan, so it makes one wonder, what's the nightlife like on Casalda? <laughs> <laughs> they just do errands and yeah. read. And, yeah. and then last and least, I'm going to do something I fucking shouldn't do. And don't do it. Recommend. Don't do it. A short story that I wrote. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because my stifled dream. It's our show, dog. Well, as I said, ruff, ruff, my, <laughs> my dream that's been deferred is to be a classic 50s era sci-fi writer. And I try to do that. So if you're not aware, I have a Tumblr called seriousswame.tumblr.com. Highly recommended. A lot of poetry well, in there as You're well. very nice. Yeah, it's, it's mainly got poetry and sci-fi short stories. But Yeah, I do a lot of tumbling, buddy. And I know the good <laughs> tumblers, all right? I don't recommend you poke around. I'm not just plugging the site. I recommend you navigate right on over to a short story I wrote some years ago called Cost of Living that I couldn't help but be reminded of when I read Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. I don't think I've seen it. To the point where I wondered if I have read Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, forgot I read it, uh, ripped it off in my story, and then yeah, read it. And that'll happen. Maybe. But, uh, but, but it's know. totally different enough to be worth a read. Yeah. It's about a future where they invent a way to lengthen your telomeres so people stop aging, and it doesn't go well, just oh. like every story where people gain immortality. <laughs> <laughs> and I wonder if that would work. You probably found out that that would maybe kind of work. I'm really proud of it just because the pseudoscience is based on somewhat more believable pseudoscience than right. most of those stories. I go like, into like this some, story where it's a yeah, magic potion. <laughs> because I'm a cracked writer, I actually did detail on what they're trying to do to lengthen lives. Yeah. I'm not saying it will work, but I'm saying it's, my bullshit's fairly believable in that story. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. 
we'll link it uh, yeah. along with all these others. Oh, cool. I didn't even think of that. Yeah, yeah. Jeez. It's going to get linked out okay, there, Okay, I also want a related reading of my PayPal account, <laughs> the donate button. I think people should give a read. Let's link to that, my Patreon. Yeah, well, you have to click through to read <laughs> yeah. it. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Those are relating readings. I think we can go on to a segment called Vonnegut News. Nice. 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 News. This is a quick round of it. There are two different theatrical things. One about to happen and one coming soon. If you're in uh, the fine city of Houston, Texas, howdy. And you can go, <laughs> sorry, it's terrible. Uh, you can go check out Stages Repertory Theater. They are doing a play called Who Am I This Time? And Other Conundrums of Love, which is adapted from the stories of Kurt Vonnegut, including stories it that are in Welcome to the Monkey House. And it why? premieres. Why? There's some, I don't get why people don't like sci-fi as much as I do. I'm like... Yeah. You love Vonnegut, and the one you want to adapt is Who Am I This Time? It's just like yeah, a cute an ditty odd... about a couple. Right, it's an, an odd choice to me, but... Adapt maybe... the one where the guy psychically destroys the Earth's nuclear supply. It's so much cooler. <laughs> well, and the, the description on broadwayworld.com says that the play's New England everyman narrator and the poignant, often comic look at daily life and relationships are gently reminiscent of Thornton Wilder's classic, Our Town. So they understand that they're doing this part of Vonnegut, and so it'll hopefully be a, an excellent version of that. It starts January 25th, which is, I believe, the day after this episode comes out, and then it runs through February 12th. So if you're in uh, Houston in late January or early February... We have both go. plugged it and expressed that one of the hosts doesn't understand why anyone would ever make that production. <laughs> so consider that a, the bump. You yeah. got the Vonnegut's bump. Well, and here's another one for you. Closer to home for us, this is in Los Angeles. There's a theater company called Sacred Fools, and they are doing a production of Sirens of Titan as a play. <sighs> And I involuntarily made that noise. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, we're going to that. Yeah, it starts March 31st and it runs through May 6th. So it's a ways out, but that's happening in, uh, in good old Hollywood. Oh my God, I'm so infinitely excited for that. The yeah. difference between how bored I was a second ago and how excited I am now <laughs> is remarkable. <laughs> so yes, and you can find them at sacredfools.org. And uh, you can go to stagestheater.com to find this Houston production as well. So and if you happen, get on the stage. If you buy tickets on the right day, we'll see you there. <laughs> we will not be telling you ahead of time what day that is. Yeah, yeah no, we, don't, we are very private people. <laughs> yeah. We, are, yeah. uh, we will both be wearing our sleep masks and noise-canceling headphones. We'll just <laughs> hold hands, walk into the venue, find separate seats, and be private. Right, right. <laughs> we and hold hands to navigate, see, because we're blind and deaf. Yeah, we're yeah. like the main characters in Slapstick. We need each other to function. Exactly. Yeah, yeah we're very private. <laughs> so usually we're in a state of sick dyingness because we're so far away from each other. Oh, yeah, it's the worst. Yeah, we really need to rub our heads and genitals together more in this ew, podcast. Ew, 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 ew. We'll get to that. I love people who haven't read Slapstick who are like, what the fuck are they even talking about? <laughs> And yeah, and then other straight tidbits, uh, we talked about last Vana news, but since it's in this book, Jennifer Lawrence referenced the title story of Welcome to the Monkey House to talk about her fear of not being a mom in an interview mm -hmm. in public. And then also there's an art exhibition of Kurt's stuff in Chicago, and then they're also working on a new Vonnegut library in Indianapolis. We'll talk about that on the mini-sode, because I, I checked out those places and have thoughts, but I think we can save that for then. I agree. Yeah, <laughs> and that's all the news that's fit to curve. All the news <laughs> that should be the way we get in. Yeah, tonight at eleven, the same news again because there's not a lot of Kurt Vonnegut news. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's the episode for Welcome to the Monkey House. And <sighs> boy, oh boy, that book came out by the way in 1968. It was a product of between Rosewater in 65 and Monkey House in 68. Kurt 
quit his job teaching at the University of Iowa, got a Guggenheim Fellowship, went to Germany to try to research his book about the war, and then came back and tried to find a new publisher, and he did it by presenting them with an unfinished manuscript of Slaughterhouse-Five. And this new publisher, Samuel Lawrence, said, three book deal, let's go. And Kurt was like, I I don't know, I guess my books don't make money. And Lawrence said, I'll worry about the money, it's fine. And then they put out Welcome to the Monkey House is the first book of it in 68. And then the next book of that deal was Slaughterhouse-Five in 1969, which is our next book for the show, Slaughterhouse-Five. Like, if you're not already listening to this podcast, I don't know what your problem is. You have no (laughs) excuse now. No, I mean, this is the one. Yeah. This, this will is, get more people will listen to our next episode than probably any other episode of the podcast. Yeah, I mean, like the Vonnegut <laughs> I was presented with in high school was Cat's Cradle, but I think the one most people see in high school as a novel is Slaughterhouse Five. But I mean, you know, we have our Vana friends who we love. Yeah. But if anything's just going to get a random traffic bump from people just Googling it who've never heard of us, it'll yeah. be the Slaughterhouse Five episode. Yeah. If you want to get your friend into the show, this is probably yeah. a, an onboarding point. Yeah, it's going to be it's a, the gateway book. Yeah. Yeah. Knoxberger walked right in and he's like, you just wrote your first hit single. <laughs> and that's that's the episode. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Brett. And if this isn't nice, I don't know what is. Exactly.